Good Friday afternoon. Now, welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Block Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it, including on our homepage. Just go there. Just It's very easy. It's the name of the show, Southern Sense, as in common sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my oh-so-brave and diligent co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Are we ready to rock and roll? I believe we are. You know, get the show on the road, as they say, Arnhem and Bailey. <laughs> you know, I miss the circus. <laughs> I really do. But, uh, hey. Oh, we don't, we, you don't need the circus anymore. You've got Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in the White House. We don't need a circus anymore. <laughs> we and got one. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. She was Talk just on the... Yeah, she was just on the airwaves the other day calling um, 18-year-olds stupid. Now, what a way to bring people to your cause. Mm, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, fun and joy. Fun and joy. we got ourselves great guest lineup today. Uh, your friend, Christopher Jersky, uh, he's the creator of the People's Audit, which is uh, out of Florida. And I hope to see this go nationwide. Honestly, we're going to talk to him about that and election integrity. We also have Todd McNutt. He's the founder and creator of Representing Me, M-E. It's a political media platform where elected officials and candidates can post their positions. This is something he just recently founded. Um, We also have my friend Colin Heaton. Uh, He has a new book out. Uh, Those of remember Colin, he's a former soldier and Marine sniper. He's a military historian, a college professor, and the author of over two dozen books, uh, called the latest one is Above the Pacific, Three Medal of Honor Fighter Aces of World War II Speak. And man, I got to tell you, I got little post-it notes all over that book. And then we're going to close out our show with our guest from the Heritage Foundation. And always a shout out to Tom at Heritage for sending us wonderful people every 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 single week. Hannah Davis will be joining us, and she's the research assistant at Heritage Foundation's Border Security and Immigration Center. And considering all the things that creepy Uncle Joe and Queen Camilla Mel are doing in the White House, what a wonderful person to speak to. Oh, jeez. I'm telling you, <laughs> we don't need a circus in town. We have it in the political arena. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's quite day. amusing. Quite amusing. <laughs> and those looking for us at the new format, we are struggling to get it up. I am no computer whiz, so <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to be waiting through it. It will be done. I just can't guarantee when. I was hoping it would be a matter of weeks. It looks like it's going to be a little bit longer as we struggle through <laughs> getting all the uh, kinks out of it and figuring out how to use all the beautiful bells and whistles in it. So you're stuck with us as the way we look today. Oh, man. Well, I mean, there's so much more to talk about. When we have Colin on, we're talking about him with Ukraine because things are happening over there. Poland is now sending fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, We know uh, Latvia is sending stolen cars over there, (laughs) drunk driving cars, stolen cars. (laughs) Yeah, well, then make the arrest. What are they going to do? All these these vehicles and compounds? Hey, put them to use. Send them to the Ukraine. Ukrainian rebels and fighters can use them to help win against Russia. Hey, it's it's good news, right? <laughs> Who is the court? Hey, they say, 
they say necessity breeds innovation, so hey, innovate. Yep, yep. yep. And now uh, this came out today that China's premier, Xi, is going to be visiting Russia and being a guest of Putin in the Kremlin. He's going to be going there next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And if that is not a sign of solidarity with Russia in the fight in Ukraine, I don't know what is. This White House is so national security weak. It's, I don't know how we're not going to get into a third world war. I mean, it, it's a scary prospect right now. And look what led us into World War I and World War II, a financial crisis. And then you have a larger power trying to overtake smaller powers. It doesn't that sound like Germany in World War One, and then Germany once again in World War Two? And then we had Germany joined with Japan and Italy in World War Two. Yeah, we're walking it, it, right into this. It all sounds so ominous, you know. You know, it's something about to break. You just don't know. What and when, even though you have a sense. That's my take. Yeah, on it. we have bank failures that have occurred during the last week. We have the, we're in a depression. I'm sorry, not a, no longer recession. I think we're now falling into a full-fledged depression, and we have that going in with world powers rattling the saber swords and saying, "Hey, listen, uh, Ukraine and Crimea uh, belong to us." And China wants Taiwan, and North Korea wants to take over South Korea. I mean, we're seeing this across the world stage. You have South Africa hosting Russia and China in naval operations. Uh, you have the same thing happening in different countries in South America, welcoming the Russians and Chinese in there. Uh, we have the drug cartels running the rackets worldwide. We have an open border. We have an invasion. And I don't care if someone calls me racist. Because the fentanyl that's come in over here, it doesn't care who it kills. It doesn't care about gender, race, color. It doesn't care. Fentanyl <clears throat> will kill anyone and everyone. I'm sorry. They're, they're, in, they're bringing over the border a weapon of mass destruction in fentanyl. There's no other way to describe it. And these are all things we're going to be talking about with our guests. So it's going to be an exciting show, and I hope you guys can hang in there and stay with us. Uh, as it stands now, Curtis is in up the chat room. I can't for some reason join in. So if you see a post by the little alligator, that alligator is my alter ego. <laughs> so I'll try it's always to, good to have the one. windows. Because <laughs> I have to go through between two different computers in order to do this. So. I want to say hi to everyone that is joining us on the chat room here on Southern Sense and Blog Talk Radio, as well as over at Facebook and YouTube. <sighs> Take a deep breath, Ann. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> oh, man. But what we're going to be doing now, those that listen to us know that we do start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. Now, Curtis, I see that you just put in the in the thing. You didn't hear the opening music come on. That's correct. I didn't hear it until Sergio started talking. That's strange. That is very very strange. I don't know why that did that. Well, hopefully that won't do that later on in the show. Okay. Yeah. That said, uh, we start off each and every show 
with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Darnell Calhoun of the Riverside Riverside County Sheriff's Department in California. His end of watch was January 13th of 2023. And this is coming from abc7.com and also be coming from pressenterprise.com. The first is from Leticia Juarez and Amy Powell. And they write, as I pull up the video here, a public memorial service was held in Rancho Cucamonga for Riverside County Sheriff Deputy Darnell Calhoun, who was gunned down in the prior week while responding to a domestic disturbance call. Before the funeral, the public was invited to show support ahead of the memorial by lining the route of the procession from Marietta Valley Funeral Home to the Rancho Cucamonga Church. I will always have the pain and sorrow of the Calhoun family edged in my heart, said Riverside County Sheriff Chad Bianco at the public memorial at Abundant Living Family Church. He had, I will forever pray that I never have to hold another deputy's wife as she cries out in disbelief or hear the pain of a grieving mother, he said. When a deputy or a police officer leaves for work, the last thing a family ever considers is that their hero will not be returning home. Vanessa, while you and the boys have lost Darnell, you have 4,000 aunts and uncles at your beck and call. You will always be a part of us. You'll be our family, and we will always be there for you. A slideshow was displayed that included dozens of photos of Calhoun with family members and fellow law enforcement officers. During a montage, Lakers legend Shaquille O'Neal, himself a reserve law enforcement officer, offered his condolences in a video. You know, I do not know your husband, Deputy Calhoun, but any man that worked as law enforcement, you could tell they loved the community, O'Neill said. I know he loves you, and I know he loves both of those beautiful babies. And again, my heart is so heavy. A viewing of the fallen lawman's casket was held at the funeral home, and a candlelight vigil was also held outside the sheriff's Lake Elsinore station where nearly 150 people gathered to remember the 30-year-old deputy. Lake Elsinore Mayor Natasha Johnson said Calhoun's sacrifice reminds us of the ultimate price our law enforcement officers are willing to pay to keep our families and our communities safe. Ms. Lane Deputy's family released a statement thanking the residents and others for their outpouring of love and support. While we are heartbroken, we also celebrate the gift of Darnell, the husband, father, son, brother, and deputy, according to the family statement. His life, though cut short, is a blessing. Our faith in Jesus will carry us through this. And we know we will be reunited with Darnell once again. Calhoun was gunned down allegedly by a 42-year-old Jesse Navarro of Lake Elsinore. The deputy who survived by a pregnant widow and two young children died after he was rushed to Inland Valley Medical Center in Wildermar, where the suspect was also taken and remained in critical condition 
after he was shot by a deputy backing up Calhoun. A Help a Hero fundraiser was established in honor of Calhoun. He was a husband, a father of two young boys, aged two and four, and a third baby boy on the way, according to the Riverside County Deputy Sheriff Relief Foundation, which initiated the fundraiser. He will be remembered as a son, a brother, a grandson, a nephew, a cousin, a son-in-law, a brother-in-law, and a loyal friend. Bianco said Calhoun was fatally shot around 4.20 p.m. on January 13th in the 1800 block of Hilldale Lane where he approached a resident from which a 911 call had been placed indicating there was a domestic disturbance. Calhoun was hit when Navarro opened fire, Bianco said. The second deputy on the scene fell Calhoun wounded in the street, Bianca said. A gunfight ensued with his suspect, who was shot. Calhoun was assigned to Ledge Elsinore Station after he laterally transferred from the San Diego Police Department just under one year ago. The agency posted a message saying personnel were devastated to learn the passing of Deputy Darnell Calhoun, an SDPD officer until 2022. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family, friends, and colleagues in SDPD and the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. And from Brian Rocos of Present Enterprise. Whether Darnell Calhoun was doling out brisket at the barbecue restaurant of his beloved family, teaching children about God, or patrolling Lake Elsinore, he lived to serve. Calhoun knew the dangers of the latter, said longtime friend and retired Riverside County Sheriff, Lieutenant Danny Young. Yet he willingly went out daily to serve mankind, Young said. In fact, he put service above self, as the motto reads, on the side of the patrol car. Some 2,000 people gathered at Abundant Living Family Church in Rancho Cucamonga on Saturday, January 21, to pay tribute to the life of Calhoun, 30, a sheriff's deputy who was slain on January 13th as he arrived at a domestic violence call in the community of Lakeland Village. Born in Panoma, Calhoun grew up in Marietta, where he was homeschooled and his parents ran a restaurant. Calhoun himself had worked at the Calhoun Texas Family Barbecue. He loved football. The program handed out at the service featured a photo of him in a Philadelphia Eagles jersey. San Diego Police Chief David Nislick said that when Calhoun introduced himself to the department's command staff, everything said was about family. Nislick shared that a common phrase I always heard about Darnell was servant, servant, heart. Eric Cobb Calhoun's pastor at the Covenant Grace Church in Manatee recalled a recent two-hour lunch with Calhoun, who taught third and fifth graders at the church and served as a youth leader. Darnell loved being Vanessa's husband, he said. Darnell loves being a dad. That's all he wanted. With that answer, I knew we had hired a good one, said Bianco, who praised Calhoun as strong, kind, and compassionate. He loved his job, 
and he understood it was his calling to help people. Concluding his remarks, Bianco turned to Kelvin's widow and said, while you and the boys have lost Darnell, you have 4,000 aunts and uncles at your beck and call. Even though Darnell's time with the San Diego Police Department was short, it was actually huge, the chief said. He made us a better city. He made us a better department. He made us better officers every single day, watching his lead and how he dealt with people. After guests left the church, Calhoun's casket was brought outside as bagpipes played. As the flag-draped casket emerged, ten helicopters flew over. One peeled off in the missing man formation. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Darnell Calhoun. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate it to the brave men and women that serve our nation from the birth of it through today and into our hopeful future. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend I stand for my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest
we're back. You're here listening to Seven Cents live on Blog Talk Radio and everywhere else. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-cents.com. All right, uh, Curtis, we're back rocking and rolling live. I keep on hearing an echo somewhere. It's driving me crazy. Curtis, you with me? Curtis forgot to mute, unmute himself. Okay. All right, we'll just keep on rocking and rolling. And hopefully we have our first guest call in very shortly uh, because, Curtis, we need you here. And I have to send Curtis a message. Yes. Wake up. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? No, we got you. We got you now. Okay. <laughs> we got you now. We got your first. Because I wasn't muted. That's the thing. I'm curious why. That happened last week, too. We have got oh, to you may have the system. Just... We're waiting for your your friend to call in Uh, But I was going over some of the things that were in the news uh, lately And um, the big thing was the the bank fallouts Oh my God And of course, everyone's blaming Trump, right? Well, hold your horses Hold your horses These banks that went under well, they had people in charge of investing because they're allowed to invest the depositors' money into various markets. They were investing in all these woke items, equity, diversity, whatever all the other things is that, that's out there, that is wokeism out there. And guess what? They were all losing money hand over fist. Now, if you're investing someone's money for them, don't you think it would behoove you to make sure you make a return on that investment? You go to see where the money gets the best bang for your buck. But they put people in charge of investing their money on these institutions that had barely any background, if any, in investing. And now they're going, well, government regulations let it slip. Well, you've got themselves policing themselves there's no government oversight or regulation to make sure that they adhere to the rules of the game. So it's not Trump's fault. It's the current administration that allowed this to happen. So, you know, it's, 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 it's idiots leading idiots. And what do you expect to have happen? You're going to lose money and the banks are going to go under. And now it's up to the taxpayer to bail them out under the FDIC. But... There are, um, what was it, on one of them, we had, I think, 30 banks came. Where did I put this here? We had $30 billion. Let, let me make sure I get this story correct. Correct. All right. First Republic does get bailed out $30 billion in deposits from 11 major U.S. banks, uh, which include Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. Now, I read through this, and First Republic sell. First, let's keep them backwards. First Republic stock fell some 14.7% in the hours after trading. But it started to go back up once they heard about the investment. Um, what they're doing, these 11 banks, are saying, all right, we're going to give you X amount of dollars. You have 120 days to use that money to bring your bank back up to snuff. So we'll see what happens. So that gives them four months. And so I think we do have our first guest in on the line. Let's bring him in on here. 
and welcome to the show, Christopher Yurkis. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Oh, of course, Curtis. <laughs> Let's bring him back on. Christopher, I'm sorry, Curtis jumped jumped ahead of us. <laughs> How are you today? Excellent. You? All right. I didn't know if I pronounced your last name correctly. Is it Yurkis? Jersky. I apologize. Well, Constantly we'll mispronounced, mis- so no problem. <laughs> hey, listen, I've, I've got a Latvian last name. My late husband was from Latvia. You want to know? I, I've, I've seen it messed up so many different ways. <laughs> but mm-hmm. welcome here to A Southern Sense. Now, you have put together a website called The People's Audit. Um, it's the-peoples-audit.org, O-R-G. And you yes, did this yes. because we're looking at election irregularities, and you became invest, involved in investigating these irregularities. Tell us how this whole thing came about and um, what this website's all about. Well, I usually start out by telling everybody what motivates me because it's, it, it's unusual unless you put it in the context. Um, I was born to two Polish immigrants, first-generation first, uh, uh, American born in Philly. And um, I was blessed to have a trip to Poland when I was a teenager in 1987. And I saw communism for the first time in my life and and how horrible it was. And I essentially kissed the ground when I came back. I became became a patriot at that moment, had to inhale anything I could possibly think of to understand what could cause communism, what would make communism. And then uh, as fate would have it, I I joined the military too. I basically was in the Air Force for four years. And when I was getting out of the Air Force, we were all celebrating Poland becoming free because the wall came down. And at the same time, I met a woman from Venezuela that would turn out to be my wife. And then I watched her country get systematically dismantled over a 10-year period just because of an election. So on November 3rd, the next or next next day, November 4th, I woke up with my hair on fire because I knew exactly what was happening. I mean, I was sending money to my my mother-in-law in Venezuela. I knew how they took that country apart and and essentially ran a psyop on the entire country, basically tricking them to believe that it was an election, a fair election there. So I went out met some local people. It took a while for me to find some local people that were actually working on election integrity. I did join some like national groups just doing stuff online. But when I met up with some people, some great patriots here locally, they were already doing canvassing in August in the hot sun and trying to figure out um, uh, basically what happened from 2020. And there was a ton of anomalies at that point as well. You may have heard of another group as well called Defend Florida that was running canvassing across the state. That's essentially yeah. what how I got started. Yeah, I think I think Curtis, we had Defend Florida on the show at the time they were doing that, didn't we? I believe. I'm sorry, so. I didn't hear that last part. Well, I believe that we had Defend Florida people on the show when they were doing the canvassing because I believe Curtis was involved with that somehow or other too. Yeah, the canvassers were the wealth of information because I, I didn't want to uh, 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 impose or, or guess anything. I wanted to see what they were finding. And when I was listening to a number of them, they all probably said the same um, same story over and over again, where it was somebody that uh, two things, either you walked up to a door and the person said you voted 
but they didn't vote. They're, they're claiming that they never went to vote, but they're showing on the records as voting. And they were perplexed because they don't know how that happened. And then the other one was is that they would ask for a person and they're no longer there because they sold the house and moved. And again, they were just as confused because they're like, how is that possible? We never got a ballot for them at the house. So how is it that you see them voting? So that, that's what started me. And the first thing we did was we went through and went through all of the addresses in the whole state of Florida and essentially collapsed them in so you could see who was voting in each house. And that was really the first thing that we put up was that website, the People's Audit. And you could have went to People's Audit and checked to see if someone voted from your house in 2020 and if you were on record for voting. So it was essentially would check the 2020 election against your household and see who, who, who was registered inside, if they voted, as well as how they recorded you as voting. Now, Florida was using mail-in ballots at that point because of uh, the, the pandemic, uh, if I remember correctly. So a lot of people were not going to the polls. So you had no idea whether or not the actual person who was the registered voter was getting their ballot and they, that they indeed were the ones returning it. Was that the major problem you were finding? Yeah, but the most unusual thing about it was is that there was nothing showing up at those people's houses. Though that's probably the thing that just haunted us because what, what I also found when I was collapsing everybody together like that was we found this was also around the time of 2000 Mules when the 2000 Mules movie came out. I could also see how many people were voting from each household, and we saw some glaring examples of like there was a courthouse in Okaloosa that had like 9,000 people voting from it. Uh, we had a, uh, the supervisor of election in Miami had another 10,000, 11,000 people voting from it. Um, just various places all around the state. There was a yacht club in Jacksonville that had like 4,000 people to an abandoned building. And they were supposedly on yachts, all voting, like 85% of them voting by mail. Like it didn't, all these things didn't make sense. But going back to your point, basically the, the, oh, I'm sorry, I just had a, a little <laughs> blip. What was the exact question again? <laughs> well, I was talking about the problem with the mail-in voting that you were encountering in the 2020 That's election. That's right. I'm and sorry. how you were, you were citing how many different areas, different buildings had people registered to vote in astronomical numbers. Uh, yeah, was that was basically the flip side of the coin where people were telling us in individual houses <clears throat> that they never received the ballot to the, their house but here they are being shown as voting by mail. And then you would have these, these sky rises and all these weird anomalies, these places that had incredible amounts of volume of ballots didn't make any sense. Like to, to flip the, the opposite was this, this literally, it's like an abandoned building, a commercial building in Clay County, Green Cove Springs. And it had like 3,000, almost 4,000 people voting by mail from there. And it's like you go to the building, it's empty. There's nobody inside. It's just it's an abandoned commercial building. So it was like, okay, Chris. what is going on? How do you explain this? Yeah, Chris, yeah. this is CS. How's it going? We all right. The midterm elections. Um, I noticed that all the the ballot boxes had to be inside the precinct, you know, where you voted, and they had to be guarded. Um, I mean, like it was Fort Knox. 
Um, now, because of this, has there been any surveys or studies to show that there was a significant difference this time with the the um, boxes, the drop-off boxes being guarded versus what happened in the 2020 election where they were outside and people can, you know, put in 800 of them if they want to ballot. Yeah, there was still, there were still some weird anomalies that we're trying to get to the bottom of, like in Orange County, for example, there were still examples of people harvesting ballots. We had a lot of good candidates lose their race in, in, in districts in our Orange County, um, mostly because of mail-in ballots. And it points to basically like harvesting or ballot stuffing. So that, that was still happening, even though they were being guarded. Um, but it's, it, it runs the gambit because it, it, so many things changed since 2020 versus 2022. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a very strange thing. So we're still trying to go through it and reconcile different things. Yeah. And I, I was mainly focused on the drop-in boxes, you know, where people come to the precinct mm-hmm. and drop off their, um, their vote um, paperwork. And I was wondering if that showed any difference. You know, yeah, the big the thing fraud. that we saw that was unusual for this time around was a, a lot of a lot of counties just went ahead and uh, uh, put the postage on the ballots. So, for example, in 2020, the drop-in boxes were really attractive because they would save you the postage. But they they like literally thought ahead and figured, oh, we'll just postage all of these ballots so people were able to drop them in the mail. That's what was the big change for 2022. So, but there was still some anomalies with, with, uh, with, especially there was a whistleblower that came forward in Orange County, uh, Cynthia Harris, I believe her name is, and she talked about basically them harvesting ballots and going to drop boxes and, and usually dropping off 50, 50 ballots or more, and they were essentially not even touched. Like people, I don't know, I don't know if it was under surveillance, but they, they were able to get away with it. Wow. You know, we've been having here in South Carolina, you know, audits on ours. Uh, they put out these new machines where you go to one, you make all your choices, it prints out your ballot so you can physically look to see what's there. But what's on the ballot itself is also a barcode. So when you feed it into the reader, you don't know if that barcode is altered. You may see your candidate's names printed that you voted for, but you can't guarantee the barcode is reading it. So, yeah, yeah, there there, are so many things. So that's a new one that they're pushing out because they said that that one is certified and also handicap accessible. So they're using a lot of excuses to try and push that down. But you're absolutely right. There's no way to clearly identify that you did that. I mean, they, they could print that receipt out all day long because someone's just touching a screen. And it, it, you'll have paper for an audit, but how do you absolutely know that someone came in to vote? That that's just the receipt that just they could print out and have a barcode on it that says that that person voted. But it also, if you can't read that barcode, there's no way that barcode would match the candidates that you chose. It could be someone yeah, else manipulating so the machine. Ways. There's so many ways. We we recently found out that uh, Dominion, for example. Uh, if I remember correctly, there was something that was a, they couldn't read red ink. So if somebody was using red ink on the ballot, it wouldn't, it wouldn't read that red ink. 
So you got that, that situation in Arizona where it was like Sharpie gate that they were calling it. Mm-hmm. There's so many yeah. things that you probably spend a whole day on all the various ways that they have to either manipulate the paper or make it look like someone was voting or correct their vote. It goes on and on. That's, that's a glaring example, but that that's something that's troubling because like, like you said, there's no way to know for a fact that that barcode is going to be read correctly. And there's no way to know that a human being actually generated that thing. Um, With a piece of paper, you can look to see, and it just like a signature, your bubble has kind of a fingerprint as you, as you scribble in that bubble, we know a human did that versus somebody that just printed mm-hmm. something. Now, one of my favorite peeves is ballot harvesting. And mm-hmm. that's where someone will has the ability to collect ballots from individuals. or And many times we're finding that the person collecting the ballots say, don't worry about it, you know, I'll sign it, I'll fill it in for you. We've also seen it with nursing homes where people are incapacitated, not mentally capable of casting a ballot, and yet they're still listed as having voted. And I've, I've heard story after story. I had, had one of my members going, my mom is in a nursing home. She's in a coma. And yet I was told when I checked that she voted. And that's here in yeah. South Carolina. I was hearing about yeah. people pulling up in vans to nursing homes to help with the voting. There's so many ways that our system has been manipulated. So what's the answer? I mean, we, we ultimately, we had the same thing in Florida. We saw the exact same thing. When we started putting people into their households, all kinds of stuff came to like rehab centers, schizophrenic hospitals that they would admit somebody with mental issues. And then within moments, they're registered to vote and they're all getting their ballots delivered to a single PO box. I mean, it, it just runs the gambit. You're absolutely right. The answer really comes back down to demanding a single day in-person uh, election with a very, very limited absentee ballot. I was in the military. There's, there's good excuses to get an absentee ballot. Maybe you're a first responder, a pilot. You can't show up for election day, doctors, things like that. They might have a valid excuse, but they should be very rare and they should be uh, well scrutinized where you make sure that their identity is real before they give them to the ballot. Maybe they show up at a early voting location or something for those particular things and get vote in person as well. I, I can't stand mail-in ballot because through my analysis, what I was looking at as far as something to compare it to, people were calling me from Washington and California and just begging to say, whatever you do, just don't adopt mail-in ballots, because they were pushing it really hard in Florida. Literally, all the supervisor mm-hmm. of elections changed their logos to have mail-in little envelopes inside of them, because they loved mail-in ballots. Um, and then when we started looking at, like, basically California, you, you start seeing the whole dynamic shift when uh, a very surprising election came up. I can't debate, escapes me right now, but Essentially, Nancy Pelosi became uh, ran for her house. Uh, what is it? Race was the first time you ever see mail-in ballots spike in Florida, or I'm sorry, in California. Before that, mail-in ballots were the same as anywhere else, like absentee ballots, maybe six percent or something, seven percent of the total state. And then all of a sudden, you see mail-in ballots spike to like 14, 15 percent when Nancy Pelosi race runs for the first time. And then after year after year after year, 
it literally is now that California has 95% of the people voting are vote by mail. And how on earth are you validating that those people are real? So like when people tell me that your state is turning purple, I laugh because it's not, it's not organic. That's how they turn your state purple. And it's kind of, kind of ironic that it's like you're running out of air and someone's choking you to death because that's essentially what it means to turn your state purple. They're flooding you with fake voters and, and taking over your state. I I have one that have you laughing because I heard a commentator on the news last night and it had me rolling in my, and falling off my Archie bunker chair of laughing. Uh, they're saying, well, you can never see a California ever become a red state again. And the reason being is that so many people are fleeing to red states. They're taking their votes with them, so we'll never see California red again. Yeah. And then <laughs> meanwhile, they'll use that as an excuse of the, all of our states turning turning purple because all these Californians <laughs> have now moved in and flipped our country. I don't, I've never met a California that ran to Florida and was like, wow, I want to bring everything that ruined California to, to Florida. They're, re- they're coming here because they want to escape that madness. Unfortunately, well, uh, from, I was just going to say, unfortunately, the left had made this uh, a suppression of voters' rights issue. And, yeah. um, and it seemed to be working. Um, how do we get around that? I mean, the biggest thing is, is that through education, we've been rising up and the grassroots is really where we have to, I, I have no faith that any kind of legislation or someone's going to swoop in and save the day and fix this. This has to be a grassroots movement that demands that the elections go back to the people. Smaller elections, uh, smaller precincts, hand counted by the people, by the community members, Everybody's watching, so everybody feels comfortable with the reports. No machines, single-day voting, and uh, in-person voting with ID as much as possible. But again, I trust Americans. If Americans are voting in their communities, in small precincts, this will go away. The only reason this is happening is because they've centralized a lot of this stuff, especially through mail-in ballots. Like, literally, we have one printer in the state of Florida that prints ballots, mail-in ballots for two-thirds of the state. And they, they're 20 minutes away from the, the, the central post office in Orlando. They literally could back up a truck with 100,000 fully, fully filled out, what's a mail-in ballots. And uh, it only takes about 10 of those trucks to get to a million ballots. So you can imagine how quickly they can turn a state purple just by that one little, one little operation. So, again, I, I trust Americans voting in their communities, hand counting. Uh, that, that's the way we're going to get this thing back on track. All right. Well, there's something that bothered me because a number of years ago, after the 2020 elections, out came this system called Eris. And everyone was mm-hmm. touting on it. And I believe 13 states jumped on board, South Carolina being one of them. And it was like, oh, this is how we can really do electric, election integrity. But... It was a wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it, well, we, we just literally did an article in Epoch Times here in February 23rd, and it was I, I hope that it had an effect because it was an audit on Eric. And about two weeks later, our Secretary of State announced that they're getting rid of it along with two other states, I think three states, uh, West Virginia and Missouri, 
all announced on the same day. A couple things went to that. It wasn't just that article. There was a lot of grassroots pressure in Florida because we've been screaming at it for years. But let me, let me talk about the history of Eric, just to give you a glimpse of what Eric is. The, the founder of Eric, uh, David Becker, who, who actually he quit the company last week because of all the pressure, um, uh, he won a game show in, in Los Angeles, something I think he, he was on Jeopardy and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So essentially he won on a game show, and I use air quotes as won because it's kind of funny that he got a half a million dollars from all these game shows. And he literally writes an article about how he jumps in his car and drives to Washington, D.C. And now this guy that was so lucky that he bought, he won on two game shows and won about a half a million dollars. He's also so lucky that he just steps in with zero software experience, zero, zero experience building a company and has 12, uh, 12 states say, yeah, and, and basically builds a software development company that's monitoring seven states, or I'm sorry, yeah, I think it started out with seven states, but quickly grew to 12 within the drop of a hat. Now, I worked in state DOT construction, and we had a real authentic company that, that looked for uh, collusion and, and bid rigging uh, across uh, state DOT contracts. And I can tell you for a fact that it takes five, six years of just like working for free before the state trusts you to basically say, okay, we're going to give you a contract now. I've never in my whole life seen that that many states just jumped on board with a single person that had zero software experience as well as zero experience building any companies. And it, I mean, like he was a money magnet, but the thing that we found out later was he was directly tied to Soros. He, he essentially worked something mm -hmm. out with the Pew, Pew uh, Charitable Trust, and he had a huge donation from them that was backed by Soros that funded the development of all these companies. And this all happened under Obama's watch. I believe it was 2012 when it all started. Mm -hmm. Well, now, just to change the subject a little bit now, you are now involved with Mike Lindell's Cause of America. Tell yep. us what that is about and where he's trying to push every not at push, but to bring enlightenment and comments, uh, commentary and news and everything to a more conservative group. I mean, I, I can't say enough how much of a patriot Mike Lindell has been. And I really wonder where we would be without him, because the fact that he stood up and he took the onslaught that he did. But most importantly, I mean, he's helped funded so many things, lawsuits, uh, myself basically working and all this stuff and, and funding people out in the field to do the research. What I came to Cause of America to do is help basically promote their mission. And when I first came to them, they were working already on an on a incredible project that they were doing cross checks. Same thing as Eric. It's essentially another audit on Eric. They were specifically walking behind Eric, checking their work and saying, okay, if Eric, uh, we're using the same vendors that Eric uses to check the out-of-state moves, what, what's the track record of them actually removing these? And the, I mean, literally this happened like two, three days ago, they released the press release. You have a three times greater chance of being left behind after moving out of an Eric state. So for example, if you're in Florida, you had a three chance or three three times more chance staying behind on the voter rolls in Florida if you moved to Georgia, another Eric state, if you versus if you moved from California to New York, 
which are two non-ERIC states. So Democratic non-ERIC states were better at cleaning their voter rolls than ERIC states. Now, I, I don't have the records, I don't have the reports, but that's pretty damning because the other thing, if you go to ERIC's website, they brag more about how many people they've registered versus what they've cleaned. I actually did a post the other day that they, they bragged that they've cleaned off 35 million people. And in reality, about 23 of those million are just in the same state. They just moved to a different county in the same state. So they wouldn't necessarily be cleaned off. But for every one person they, they supposedly say they cleaned, they've added four people to the voter rolls per their own, per their own numbers on their own website. So when you do the math, it's like, are, are, they, are they a cleaner or an inflator? That's, that's the real question about when you have Eric in your state. Mm. Yeah, tell us about the Mike Lindell cause uh, of America. Oh, yeah, back to cause of America. Their real function is to help states basically do these analysis and check voters that have moved out. One of the easiest things to prove to your supervisor of election is that you have somebody in another state that's still registered in your state and they're voting. They're called cross-state movers. So that was probably their biggest project over the last year is they're doing data analysis and looking for people that have moved uh, out of state and flagging them and then showing it to the supervisor of election. A lot of the data that we got for doing the analysis in Florida came directly from Cause of America. If it wasn't for them, I mean, this, this stuff costs money. So like to get the data that we had would have easily been anywhere between uh, $15,000 for me to purchase it. And, and if it wasn't for Lindell, we would never have had access to that as a grassroots, uh, grassroots people out here. Well, you know, I, I remember at one point there was a website that was up that someone was running that if you keyed in your name, your date of birth, and your state of residence, it would tell you whether or not you were registered to vote. And it was nationwide type of thing. You can also check your name against the state you moved out of to make sure your name was taken off the roll. Uh, but I had it attached to my Tea Party website, but the link is no longer there. I may have accidentally deleted it. Uh, have you heard of something like that? Because I do remember directing people towards it. There were a number of projects that sprang up and tried to do something like that, but it's a very monumental task of trying to keep everything up to date. And the other thing that I found is there's, especially after 2020, they're, they're making it increasingly more difficult to get access to the voter rolls in certain states. Um, Florida, we've been really blessed because it's a sunshine laws per the constitution mandates that they have to publish these, these records to us for free on a monthly basis. But in some cases you have to pay large amounts of money to get access to it. So if they do get access, it's usually an old snapshot. They'll get it like, and then months go by and it's not updated. Like in the case of Wisconsin, I believe every time you ask for it, it costs about $12,000. Wow. But could not an individual check their own registration? Say, for example, I moved from New York, which I did, down to South Carolina. So when I was told that, you know, New York had a problem of not cleaning the voter rolls, I went onto this one website, which directed me to the New York, where you keyed in my name, and I could check specifically if I still remained on there. I, it was a marvelous site. Yeah, I, I haven't seen one that's done the centralization well 
like being able to make it one site to do uh, multiple states. And they, even if it did, sometimes they're out of date. It's a very big problem to be able to do multiple states because for me, like the, what, what we're doing, I have 15 million records, but it's times nine months. Like I'm literally looking month to month. So it's 15 million times the, those number of months. And it'll eventually be 12 months when we're, when we're watching it month to month. So it's a, it's a huge problem to keep up to date. But I would recommend as citizens, as a citizen of that state, even if you've moved out and that was your address, you have every right to call back to the county that you used to live in and demand that you be removed from the list. That's really the only person that has the right to do it because we've brought forward uh, hundreds of millions, hundreds of thousands of people that were essentially flagged for moving out of state. And we were told by some supervisor of elections that the only way we can remove them is if the citizen calls themselves. And in certain cases, they're <clears> dead. So it's like, okay, well, what, how's the dead person going to call you and tell you that they want to be removed? So. Well, you know, you've got a bunch of excellent, excellent uh, videos up there on uh, your website, which is, uh, let me get my act here together, <laughs> uh, thepeoplesaudit.org, uh, with a hyphen in, in between, uh, that explains the work that you are doing out there. Um, are you looking to do your own podcast in the near future? Oh, I, I don't know how it fit it in. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time designing. And now after we've done what we've done, probably the biggest thing that people are contacting me for is because we, we do a lot of analysis on changes. So it, when you're looking at a spreadsheet, it's one thing. But when you start watching what they're doing on a week to week or monthly basis, a lot of stuff comes to light. It's, it's like almost running a surveillance camera on a location 24-7. And then, then you see the criminal actually coming in and uh, breaking into the house. We were able to find something called Red Belly Road back in, in uh, August of last year that kind of put me, I'm just an introvert. I don't really do a lot of public speaking, but that really projected me out on stage. And I didn't want to, but I had to. Um, Red Belly Road was, they were actually, they're, they're essentially stealing people's identity. So when you, when you come into the polling booth and they told you you've already voted, in Florida, when we checked into those people that had those claims, almost to a T, every single one of them said that a mail-in ballot beat them to the polls. And again, that fit a pattern of what we were talking about before, where people were voting, but nothing ever showed up to their house. So what we found out was that they were actually switching people's addresses, requesting a ballot to this now broken address. That way they could, they could harvest the ballot without you knowing it. And then they would flip your address back to your normal house address. And it make it appear that you voted and you requested the ballot. But in, in all cases that we've knocked on these people's door, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never even requested a ballot. I mean, there are so many inventive ways in which they can steal your vote. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, anyway, it was, has been fun having you here. Christopher, we welcome you back at any time. And, you know, I'd love to have Mike Lindell come on the show, too. <laughs> if you could put I a wish I could have a here. couple minutes with him, too. I'm, I'm a new employee at Cause of America. I'm looking forward. I, everybody's telling me how great his coffee is. I have to try that, too. But I'm already a fan of his pillows. <laughs> Well, thank you, and God bless you for all the hard work you're doing out there. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day.
All right. Uh, Christopher Jersky, check out his website. It's called the People's Audit, the-peoples-audit.org. Check it out. And check out the work he's doing over at Mike Lindell's. So let's bring in our next victim into our show. want to welcome for the first time to the show Todd McNutt, and he has a new website out there called representingme.com. Uh, he also has several books out on Amazon called Other People's Secrets, and he does himself his own podcast. And, oh, good Lord, he's a man about town, so welcome to the show, Todd. I am your hostess with the least mostest, the Annie, the radio chickadee. <laughs> Thank you, Annie. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I, I'm enjoying the opportunity to get to be here with you. Uh, Tell us about representing me. Uh, I was poking around on it, and it's brand new, so there's not a lot of politicians yet up on there. Uh, But what's your idea, and what are you doing? The concept is to promote absolute free and equal speech between all elected officials. We've started out with the uh, president and the former presidents, first ladies and vice presidents, We have the governors, the senators, and the congressmen from the states on the federal level. We're in the process of right now of putting together the the president's cabinet, and then we're going to go back and add the the governor's cabinet, the state, the local state senate and uh, congress, and then we're going to go all the way down to the local dog catcher. I mean, we want to have the, the mayors, the city councils, the school boards, any elected office in the U.S., we eventually want them to have a page on here so that their constituents can go and see what they really said. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's awful. That, that's awful for them, but awesome for us. Uh, because I've always said from day one, all politics is local. And you start, as you said, with the dog catcher and work your way on up. Because the person you elect to your local county council or parish council, wherever you live, they go on to state office, state office to federal office. And it becomes a stepping stone to a complete political career. And if you don't keep your eye on them, then you have someone like we have in South Carolina by the name of Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yeah, it's it's important to keep an eye on them. And one of the things we've done, there's only they can post on our site, they can post a text message, they can post a photo, a video, or a document. And they can even upload like a bill they're working on and, and save it on the site. And people can go and look at those. You can thumbs up or thumbs down them. Uh, we're adding a feature to, to follow. So anytime your senator, governor, or whoever you're following posts, it'll let you know on the app. Um, we're working on that, but the, they, they can't post um, anything that would be an obscenity or anything that would be the least bit pornographic. They also cannot uh, post a threat of violence against a person or an entity. Other than that, they can post whatever they want. There's only one little caveat that we did to them. There is no delete What's button. Ah. They can't delete. Once oh, they nice. post it, they own it. Oh, good. Good, good. That's wonderful. Um, Lindsey Graham always sounds very, very conservative when it comes up to election time. After that, well, <laughs> so, oh, 
Oh, man. And we have an election coming up very shortly where Nancy Mace got in. I would have preferred Katie Arrington. Uh, but we'll see if anyone has, has anything to go against her with. Probably we'll see uh, Joe Beercan Cunningham come up again. <laughs> but it's a marvelous oh, wow. site. If, if we can get up and running, my question is, is why would a politician go to your site rather than post something on social media or just send a mailer out uh to their constituents the politicians that we've talked to one of the things that they've loved about what we're doing um and we're just we're we're, we're going to be going to dc here in the next week and going uh and setting up a thing where their social media people can come and, and meet with us we can get them hooked up where they can post directly themselves but one of the things that we're we, we that they love about it is the fact that when they come on our site and post something there's no media spin, left or right. It's just their message, their voice, their intonation, what they meant in full context. Nobody gets to do it. The other problem with social media, they can do that now on social media, but then their message gets lost in the cloud and fog of all the argument and people who agree, people who disagree, and everyone else's conversation. And on our site, we're taking all of that fog and all of that bias out of this. When they post something, it's there. We are going back and adding a town hall button on each of their pages here in the next couple of weeks, and you can click on the town hall and discuss what they posted, but their timeline is only what they post. Ah, now that's interesting. Um, because I was reading about the town hall on there. It's like, well, how do we know that, you know, it doesn't end up into a battle? I've, I've had this at times where I'll post something up, and because it's a conservative message, you know, you have the attack dog in on you. And then you have to just turn around, like, filter out the conversation and just bring it back and cool the temperature down. Uh, I've had many times where I have to say, listen, this is a civil discussion. Let's keep the name cooling out. Let's give our honest opinions, but leave all the other noise out of the conversation. Let's have a civil and polite conversation. Are you going to be monitoring something like that? We're going to, uh, we're going to monitor. We don't want things to get out of hand. The, the thing of it is we want to offer free speech. To the politicians with uh, free speech and this open discussion but it's got to be civil I mean if, if you can't we're, 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 all, we're all considered adults of your voting age and you, you get rights and privileges with that and we and as adults we should be able to discuss this stuff without getting vulgar or name-calling or being children about it That's, that that's something that I would will. love to see. <laughs> no, no, you will have someone that will come in there. And I love the Herman Cain um, acronym that when you're winning the battle against a liberal, you know you are because they sin. They switch the subject, they ignore the fact, and then they name call. <laughs> Herman Cain had yeah. to name that, nail that down perfectly, perfectly. <laughs> Listen, uh, you also have your books out there, Other People's Secrets. There's, I believe, four of them out there. And I would have loved to have you on when these guys, your books were coming out, because this is right in, in sync with what we do here. And one of the things you were talking about on one of your books is real ID. Oh, don't get me started on that one. 
did you know, and you probably do if you have feelings that strongly about Real ID, that Real ID never even went to the Senate or Congress for a dis- debate or discussion. It went straight from committee where they couldn't vote it out of committee to being a writer on a bill that was a – the bill was to pay the U.S. military people for their service, and if President Bush had not signed it, it would have been it would have then the military wouldn't have gotten their paychecks that week that very week, and so they tagged it on there as a writer, knowing he had to sign the bill. <laughs> it's it's amazing, but you know the idea of a nationwide ID. Well, basically, you do have that if you have a passport, correct? Yes. You do have that if you have a Social Security card. So it does exist in one form or another. So why do we need a third one? Well, after 9-11, Department of Homeland Security tried to, once they were formed, they tried their best to get the American people to agree to a national ID card. And it's been uh, denied three times. Their attempts three times have done that. So what they did is they found a way around it by going into the back channels and turning the driver's license, which everybody's required to have, the driver's license or photo ID, to turn that into a national ID card. And that's the reason. Nobody in the Senate or Congress, they couldn't get it out of committee because nobody was going to touch that hand grenade. That's what it was. It was like walking through a minefield, and nobody would even vote it out of committee. Well, I love the way they also say that, because if you have a real ID, then you really don't need a passport to go, say, to the Caribbean, because you've got your driver's license. But we had that before. You know, the driver's license said you were an American citizen. You had that before, so you didn't really need a national driver's license ID. Uh, When I went to renew my passport, I got the passport card. I deliberately did not have it united with my driver's license. But yet, even with the passport, you have a national ID. And again, yep. the question comes back, why do we need that? Only so that we can be tracked better. So if you use your driver's license, which is now a national ID, to go buy a gun, they know about it. Well, would you like would you like me to take you to the next level of this? Go ahead. We're diving in head first. There is I, I was a consultant in the security industry for a while. And while I was there, I was a representative for Sanyo Surveillance Cameras, and I got to find out that no surveillance cameras in the, are allowed to be sold in the United States unless there is a back door that gives government access to the surveillance camera once you connect it to the Internet. Now, I said that just to establish some credibility because I also got to demonstrate a little device they call the Grabba. It's made by Samsung. And if you do any research on it, I actually got to see a demonstration of it. And if you have a new passport, they've got the chip in it. If you have the passport card, it's got the chip in it. And if you've got a real ID, they've got the chip in it. You can drive by a policeman in, a, in your car, and he can use the Grabba to scan the car. It will give him your full ID and the ID of everyone in the car with a, with, with a chip identification. It will give him the chip number, the make, model, caliber, and uh, manufacture date of every firearm in the car that was produced after 2012 because uh, President Obama saw fit to require an RFID chip in all guns that identify them. 
and it will also tell them how much cash you have in it because we now have RFID chips in our money. So driving by in the car, a police officer can scan and tell those three things about you. And my question for Samsung is, what happened to the Fourth Amendment? Mm, yes. Now, do RFID uh, wallets work? I haven't found one yet that did. I've tested about 15 different ones that people have sent me, and I haven't found one yet that does. I've got an RFID chip reader that will read the uh, the chips that they put in the cards, and I, every one I've had, I stick cards in them and I scan it, and it just reads right through them. That's scary. So we have Big Brother here already, and people are completely unaware to it. And what drives me crazy, what drives me absolutely up the wall, you want your independence, you want your privacy, and yet you're willing to have the implant of these little devices in there so that, you know, you don't need to pull your wallet out. You just scan your hand, and your credit card information, ID information is all in your hand or in your neck or wherever you put the little little chip. I, 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 yes. this, is, this is getting out of hand. Yes, but I do have to. I have to. I have to do one. In my book, I blow that one of the one theory that the little RFID chip in the back of your hand can be used to track you, because I tell people what it will do. The, the scary part about it is, is the invasion of privacy that it could do, because that means that chip can be scanned by anyone with the right scanner, and read, and they now have your information. They can have your medical information, financial information, identification, whatever you put on that chip, or allow to be put on the chip. The problem is, is they talk about how it can be used to track people, and the little chips they're using to put in people's hands and their their arms and stuff, that chip can't. It's got a 13-centimeter range. If the antenna is not within 13 centimeters of the chip, it can't read it. So as a tracking device, it's worthless. But as you walk through a store, somebody is, is, you know, you see people, the old time they used to pickpocket, you would take your wallet. Now they can walk yeah. by you with a scanner and just pass it by your hand, and they can they can they can digitally pick you pick your pocket. <laughs> and and everyone says, oh, what's the harm in it? Until they find their ID stolen. And now, yes. have you ever found someone with their ID stolen or was able to recover it through LifeLock or something like that? Because I can't imagine LifeLock, even though I do have that service, to protect me from something like that. I have LifeLock, and the thing that uh, that I use it for, and I'm, I'm a paying customer. I have been even before I endorsed them in my book or on the on the website. Um, the thing I like about LifeLock is they don't tell you they're going to protect your Social Security number. Your Social Security number is public record. People don't realize it, right. but that's the fact. And uh, you, you can't protect public records. But what LifeLock does is they monitor the credit bureaus that if somebody goes to apply for credit and they use your Social Security number, it's going to flag that. LifeLock's going to see it, and they send you a text and say, hey, is this you? You send back and say no, and they contact the creditor and say, that's not a legitimate request. That's not Todd McNutt, or that's not Annie. So then they, they killed the deal. So I haven't known anybody that's, that's used them for actually recovering their identity, but as far as they stop gap to help protect my identity i i do like their service and what they pro, pro, they provide an offer for 10 bucks a month it's it's worth it to me 
Oh, actually, I gotta be honest with you because my husband did something stupid. My, I should say, my late husband did something stupid. Went to the wrong place, and someone uh, took his identity with his credit card. Uh, so I ended up immediately getting LifeLock for the two of us. And I'll be sitting somewhere signing whatever contract it is, and before I finished and the ink is dry, I got a message on my phone, and I have not even left that person's office. Um, within a week after my late husband had passed away. I get an alert on his that someone had already seen his obituary, got his information, and was opening up accounts all over the place. LifeLock really does work in, in that capacity. And so it's up yeah. to us to fill in the gaps that they can't. Because I also have Title Lock, too, been a, a yeah. godsend. So I, do, I yeah. do use their services and have been a paid member for, ooh, good Lord, at least 10 years. My, my, uh, I've got a, we've got a white hat hacker, Kaylee, up in Denver that we, we interview on our podcast. And, uh, her and I were talking about, I first hooked up with her. I called her because I got a text message and it said, Hey, Phil, I need so and so. Uh, this is, this is my new number. And yes, the security and privacy person that I am, I stupidly responded to it and said, This isn't Phil. And immediately, I mean, my phone was, was being hacked. I mean, I was six ways from Sunday, sideways on it. And I called Kaylee, and I said, okay, I got stupid. Now what do I do? So she said, download Norton 360, become a customer, which Norton owns uh, LifeLock now. So what I ultimately did was I got to uh, transfer it. So I paid $10 a month for the Norton, and it includes my LifeLock. So I've got them both now. But uh, I put the Norton on my phones. It, was, it gives you five devices you can put it on. And I put it on my phone and locked everything up to where someone can't hack in there now. But she said, yeah, she said what that was was a phishing text. She said they randomly send them out by computer to 100,000 phones at once, and then they log which ones reply back, and they hack you. So re- replying to a text could get you hacked. Yes. If if you don't know somebody, she said, if you don't know who it is texting you, delete the text and go on. Don't reply to it. Don't. She said, no matter how heart wrenching it is to try and tell somebody, I'm not your Uncle Joe. You've got the wrong number. They're not looking for Uncle Joe. Delete it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've been telling headache. people that. I've been telling people that forever. And recently, my mom, God bless her, she'll be 91. Uh, every once in a while, she'll get something on her phone. She'll hand it to me. Goes, should I answer it? And it's like, no, mom, that's a scam. That's a scam. Now I got a question because I've been getting a lot of this, and if I don't recognize the number, I won't answer. Um, is there a scam going out there? Because I get a lot of these toll-free numbers call me, and you pick it up, and there's no one there. Is there a scam right. where they now track your phone to see whether or not you pick it up to capture your phone information? Uh, actually, there is. Uh, Kaylee was just telling me that the other day that they've got that going on now. She said, if you don't recognize the number, or she said, I've got the, with the Norton 360, you can put on a thing that it tells you if it's a probable solicitor, and I don't even answer. Unless I know the number or it's in my phone book, or it's like a number like if uh, in an area where I know with my PR stuff, my business line's a little different, but I'll answer calls on that, but but uh, but I maybe don't know. But um, if it's coming from a 202 area code or a 212 or a 503, places that I get calls a lot, I'll go ahead and answer it. 
But if it's a local number and I don't know it, because what they do is they go into the system and they spoof the caller ID right. where it looks like it's a 918 number, which is local here to Tulsa, and it comes up 918, but I don't know the number. And a lot of times people will answer it. They think it's a local call. They think it's somebody calling them. Todd, yeah, I, this is C.S. DeCocos. I, I, I get a lot of yeah. those calls, too, and the way I look at it is this. If it's important and someone that really needs to contact me, they'll leave a message. So I don't answer it. Is that a good way to look at it? That's a great way to look at it, C.S. I've started going with the policy that, you know what, if it's a friend, they'll turn around and text me and uh, because they, they've got my number. So if it's a friend, they'll turn around and text me and say, hey, this is John. I'm trying to get a hold of you. I just tried to call you. Uh, and I, now I know who it is. And I'm like, oh, okay, and, and I call them back. But, you know, I'd rather call, take the time to, to check a message and call them back. If it's legitimate, they'll leave a message. If it's not, you know, you know, you just avoided a scam. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And forget about emails. And if anyone answers an email saying that you <laughs> just inherited money or you just won this or you just got, oh, we're giving you this free whatever it is, and you respond to the email – you're caught. You're trapped. Forget about it. Now, this is this is one of my other pet peeves. Um, I have been getting calls left and right, and usually it looks like a number I know, and it's been spoofed. Mm-hmm. But trying to sign me up for Social Security and Medicare, because yes. they know that I'm coming up to my birthday and I'll be eligible. Yep. And I was getting as many as eight to ten calls a day. So this is another thing. Selling your your phone information, your your address and phone information. Matter of fact, I got a, a letter in the mail from addressed to a gentleman who, when I moved into the house, used our home address to open up fraudulent accounts throughout. And one of the people I had borrowed money from called me and said, well, this person claims that they live here. And I said, no, I don't know who that is. That's a scam. His His name was on the letter that came to my house. So they're selling your information, but it's not who you normally think it is, is it? Well, I'll tell you who it is. And people, one of my favorites, and I actually talked to uh, to my hacker, Kaylee, about it. And I asked her, I said, you know, Experian says, runs a TV commercial, says they're going to tell us if our information is being sold on the dark web. And I said, is that really practical? Can they really do that? And she actually laughed. On camera, I've got it. I love it. Her response to it, she goes, not unless they're either buying it or selling it. Because on the dark web, if you're not on one end of the transaction or the other, you cannot tell what the transaction is. So then I then I tell people, it's like what they don't know is Experian and all of the other credit bureaus are going to sell your information on average 3,000 times today, seven days mm. a week. They sell your information, and they sell it to marketing companies. They sell it to politicians. They sell it to everybody. But these companies, you can go online, and, and I can buy your background for $1.99. They're selling it to them too. And here's the scary part. Did you know there are only three pieces of information on your credit report that are protected under the Fair Credit Reporting Act? That's your credit limit your current balance, and your credit rating on each of your cards. 
The fact that you have a Macy's card is public record. The fact you used it last Thursday is public record. I just can't see what you bought or how much you spent on it or how much you used it for. But all the rest of that is what they call above the line. And your Social Security number, your date of birth, your employer, your residence is all above the line. And above the line mm-hmm. means it's public record and they can sell it. And they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm retired police officer, besides being a small business owner and chief party activist and half a dozen other hats I wear. Uh, but I had a neighbor recently, someone called him and said, well, I'm Sergeant So-and-so, and we need to talk to you about this criminal matter. And the guy's above standing is a Marine. And he's, he, con- he immediately calls me and goes, have you ever heard of something like so-and-so? And I said, no, I guarantee it's a scam. So I got whatever information he was able to get off the guy, ran the name, came up to something that was up upstate. It was a 100% scam. Someone had their identity stolen, was being used to scam my neighbor. There are so many different things they can do to scam you. Someone's got something going on in the background. Whatever that I is. Switched, that's the I just switched your pieces. Ah, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Sound like something from right. Aliens, the movie. <laughs> But I was going to go in another direction, and now I just blew it out of my mind. I'm sorry about <laughs> I completely that. completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> um, there are so many different manners in which uh, one of the things that they do, even when you surf the web, they catch, the ad catches you. They know what you look at. They know what sites you went on to. Even though you have ad blockers or somewhere that they still are trackers out there that you're unaware of. Have you seen uh, the uh, the movie Social Dilemma, the, the documentary on Netflix? No, I have not. I don't get Netflix. You, you will want to get somebody to show it to you. It is some of the top key people who were involved in either founding or developing Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all these different people, all these different companies, and they talk about it. These people don't let their children online, period. They don't carry smartphones. These people completely avoid all of that because they know what this technology is doing and is capable of doing. It's amazing to sit and listen to them. Uh, They've got a thing called the the, the Society for Responsible Technology or something that that they've started, the foundation, I think, for responsible technology. And these guys are serious about educating people. They said, here's the thing to remember. If you're not paying for the service, you're being sold by the service. That makes sense. It makes absolute sense because somehow or other they have to get that revenue in. And either you're paying them to use their service or they're going to take whatever you got and make money off of it. It, for them, it's yep. a win-win situation, and it's a lose-lose for us because now we put so much out there, and don't even start me on TikTok. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone who I, uses I, with, TikTok is an idiot. <laughs> and with our website, um, we, uh, we, we do collect information for security purposes. If somebody makes a threat, we have to be able to turn them over to 
law enforcement, if we are approached by law enforcement and say, hey, this person made a threat, we want to know who they really are. Um, so we do that. But we don't sell. We don't do anything. Our revenue stream is we run a few banner ads on the pages between things. People can scroll right past them. I don't care. As long as they're on there, we're making enough revenue to pay for the site so that it's free to the politicians, it's free to the public, and the bills are paid by running some ads. If you see something you're interested in, click on it. If you don't, keep scrolling. I don't care. Well, you know, it has been very, very informative, Todd. Uh, I enjoyed having you on. Your website is representingme.com, M-E. Uh, you also have your podcast, which people connect to up on Twitter. I'm sorry, Facebook, which is Other yeah. People's Secrets. They can find there. And you are on Twitter under your name, Todd underscore McNutt. I love that last name. <laughs> Thank you. And we're also on YouTube as well, Other People's uh, Secrets. Ah, oh, you haven't gotten banned. I got banned. I got the badge of courage. <laughs> I haven't gotten banned yet from anybody, so I will. Well, when you get more of the site up and running, you've got to come back on, and we have to get people to start using it and uh, getting the yeah. information out there and make informed yeah. votes. All right, God yeah, bless you for the do. hard work you do, sir. Thank you, and All thank right. you for having me. Keep it up. All right, take care. Thank you so much. Todd McNutt, check him out, representingme.com. Got a dear friend of mine I haven't seen in a while and hope to run into him soon, a Colin Heaton of Heaton Lewis Books. He's also, uh, oh, good Lord, uh, Army uh, veteran, Marine sniper, uh, military historian, uh, movie consultant, uh, author of over two dozen books, chief cook and bottle washer, uh, speech writer, I'm going to lose. I, I'm, I'm running out of things to say about you, Colin. Good afternoon, and how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing fine, Annie. How are you? I am doing doing great. Um, I have read your book, and you know I always do cover to cover, and I'm putting in front of the camera so people can see all the little post-it notes, these little pink post-it notes all over the book. And it's a fascinating, fascinating book. It's called Above the Pacific, Three Medal of Honor Fighter Aces of World War II Speak. It's under your American War Heroes series. And you throw, chose three Medal of Honor uh, gentlemen. Tell us wh who you chose and why you chose them. Well, I have over 400 interviews with war heroes from many countries. So uh, my publisher decided they wanted me to follow up with Above the, uh, Above the Right and give them three Pacific Theater guys. So I just dug out the old interviews I did with Gregory Boynton Pappy and uh, Joe Foss and uh, David McCampbell. And I thought those three guys would fit perfectly together in a book about air combat in the Pacific theater. Now, um, I took a lot of time reading over the one with Pappy Boyington, and he was a character. Uh, and then the other two gentlemen, um, I had a lot of fun reading them too. They all intertwine in one way or another. And in one way or another, they knew each other uh, during World War II. Uh, but Pappy is just, he's the one that everyone thinks was this absolutely wonderful man. He walked on air, and but he was quite a scoundrel, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, there were many of his fellow prisoners of war in Japan who loathed him, and he was, when he was at the Medal of Honor reunions, some of the other recipients just kind of kept their distance. Uh, 
he he just didn't have a good following like the others, and he didn't come out with as great a reputation as Robert Conrad gave him in the TV series. No, he didn't. I mean, he got in more trouble than anyone else. Um, but even trying to get into the military, he was quite a little bit of a scandal. And he was really insistent on making sure he got into aviation in one way or another because he had an aviation engineering degree, didn't he? Yes, he did. But, and then, but Boynton wasn't his real name either. No, that was his stepfather's name. He adopted that. And, uh, and I, we won't spoil it for the readers. But yeah, he adopted that name, and then he changed his. Then he changed. He adopted a name. Then he changed that name to his stepfather's name because Boynton was married when he wanted to enlist, but you couldn't be married and enlist at the time. So he skirted around protocol and kind of like went in the back door. Yeah, I, man, it was such a, such a such an interesting book. I'm, I'm trying to look at uh, some of the things that you have in here. And uh, these guys, these three, three aces came in at the end of uh, World War One. The door had been over. People is going on with their lives. The military is now starting to modernize, going to the new age. New things are coming out, new technology. But they were starting to develop things like carrier landings and new jet fighters and things like that. They were all avant-garde. They were not yet quite well used. Um, so a lot of the technology, these men, because of their experiences doing carrier landings and working as instructors and everything, helped develop the technology that we saw in World War II. Yes, uh, Foss was mostly involved in that because he actually made, became good friends with uh, Charles Lindbergh. And Lindbergh was working as technical design specialist for several companies such as Boeing and Chance Vaught. So uh, he helped uh, Lindbergh helped the Marines and the Navy out with working the bugs out of some of the aircraft they were to, they were just discovering as they were operational. You know, one of the things I found a similar similarity in all three upbringings, they all basically came from rural areas where families were hardworking. Uh, it was either farms or some sort of a commercial establishment, but they were all deep family uh, individuals. And their families were all hardworking Americans. I mean, part of, of rural America Americans. Yeah, that's pretty much the same with most of the veterans. Uh, uh, the veterans who came from rural backgrounds, back in those days before World War II, Great Depression, uh, probably about 40, 50% of the country was farmland. Now it's like 8% or something. But there were a lot of people who came from, you know, what we call backwoods areas like my family did and uh and 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 they they struggled the family struggled during depression they struggled through very hard times and going into the military was a way out of that it was a paycheck it was a possible career and it was adventure it got them out of the house and uh then afterwards they realized that uh wow we uh after they won the war what do we do now and then some of them continue with aviation or, or working in business or whatever they did and I think it was that hard upbringing that made them such remarkable warriors because they've already gone through the, the hunger, the hunger games. They've already gone through so much that, hey, fighting the enemy, this is nothing compared to starving. Yeah. Now, at the time these guys were coming up, they were all were fascinated with Lindbergh. Lindbergh, who, who 
did all these marvelous things. But there were also other aces that they admired, too, uh, and used to have the barnstorming races that were doing cross-country. These were all influences that got them excited about aviation, isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, after World War One was over, some of the German pilots came to the States and did barnstorming. The most famous was Ernst Dudet. Uh, and he he was uh, a very famous pilot, uh, recipient of the Pearl and Marie, the Blue Max, and uh, a very successful fighter pilot. I believe Ernst had – he was the highest-scoring German pilot to survive the war with, uh, I think, 64 victories. But he flew with Rick Stopin and those guys, the Red Baron. So – he would come over here with some of the American pilots who flew during, who flew during the war and uh, Doug Campbell and guys like that. And they would just do air shows and give people rides for the, you know, they charge like a couple of uh, four or five bucks for a ride, which is big money back in the 1920s and 30s. And they made their money that way. They just flew their aircraft and made money and, and enthralled the crowds. And Joe Foss uh, and his dad, it's like in the book, they wanted to go see Lindbergh. They wanted, he wanted to meet Lindbergh, but he couldn't get up there to meet him. And uh, so his dad paid for them to take a ride in a plane. And from that point forward, Joe was hooked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I want to go back to Pappy Boyington a little bit because at the time he was going into the military, he was one of the older. And you find that with all the other, the other two. Uh, that they were a little bit older, and the military had the mindset that unless you were the youngest there, you know, the older guys, you're good for instructors, your reflexes are not going to be that great, we don't want you flying in the air. Uh, but they, Boynton and a bunch of other aviators found a way to get around that by becoming contractors in China. Yeah. Yeah, Claire Chenault was piecing together the American volunteer group for Chiang Kai-shek, fighting the Japanese who had occupied the country since 1931. And they also occupied Burma. And uh, so the ABG and, I, and the next book I do will probably have three Flying Tiger interviews in there who flew with Boynton. And uh, so they contracted out. And to do so, if you if you were an active duty military officer, a pilot, you had to resign your commission go civilian, and then you could go on the ship, go over, sign the contract, and get paid to be a combat pilot flying for Chiang Kai-shek. Well, now, this, what this was did. set up. Yeah. Oh, Boynton did this, and the way it was set up, as I read in your book, uh, Admiral Nimitz actually set the whole thing up, and FDR knew about it. So they were already ahead of, uh, of the curve. They knew we were going to get into war and this was a way to help prepare the nation for it, I think. Yeah, well, what they wanted to do was war was coming. Roosevelt knew that, okay? He understood that. And Roosevelt wanted to join Churchill in fighting the Germans. That's why he was sending American ships without American flags on them to help escort British convoys. And, of course, they were getting sunk. Uh, but in the Pacific, the Japanese had occupied all of the former French colonies by 1941, and uh, so Chiang Kai-shek needed help because he and Mao Zedong, leading the communists, were both fighting each other as well as the Japanese. So Chiang needed some assistance, and FDR was more than happy. Yeah, Nimitz came up with a, with a thought process, said, well, why don't we just take some pilots not doing much of anything? Let's help the Chinese out. And if this thing comes to us, we'll have some combat experienced pilots. We'll also have some good friendships over there that we're going to need later on, and it all worked out that way. It's starting to sound a little bit like what's going on in Ukraine today, doesn't it? 
A little bit, but the big, vast difference is that we don't actually have uh, American contractors signed on by the Ukrainian government to fight for Ukraine. That's the only major difference. Well, which is what we had there in in China with Boynton. But they played games with getting the money to them because they were supposed to be paid so much for, for where they were there, so much for everything they shot down. Uh, but Trump got shut and everyone else was just kind of like, playing games with their money. Well, actually, from my interviews with other flying tigers, such as uh, with some famous names, I mean, you know, Tex Hill for one, uh, Chang paid the money. The money went through a bank, and the bank went through uh, Claire Chenault's uh, personal uh, assistant slash assistant commander, uh, Harvey Greenlaw. And Boynton accused Greenlaw of stealing their money, which is why they weren't getting paid. And Tex Hill and the other guys said, yeah, they had some issues getting paid, and they weren't sure what the problem was. And uh, But Boynton, uh, as, I, as I got from his interview in the book, he, he sort of made a very good point to Harvey Greenlaw that, well, if you don't pay us, some of this unexploded Japanese ordinance might find its way in your tent. And uh, so they eventually got their money. Now, when you were interviewing Boynton, there was a lot of side notes in there. I didn't see a lot of that when you interviewed the other two aces. Uh, There was a lot of times you were questioning the veracity of Pappy Boynton. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it wasn't me questioning. It was his fellow pilots and other people questioning because I let them read the work. I let them read the interview. And some of his uh, fellow pilots in the ABG, the Flying Tigers, uh, not summoning the black sheep. He would pretty much straightened himself out by the time I interviewed those guys. But the ABG pilots were very wary of flying with Boynton because he was sometimes quite often drunk uh, flying. He was accidentally shot up a, an Australian P-40 pilot by misidentifying the fighter because he was drunk. Uh, he, he he was kind of reckless in their in their opinion. So – and some of the stuff he said contradicted what they told me in their interviews. So I just let the guys sift through the stuff over the years, and I would get their feedback. I mean, you did you said 400 interviews over how long a period of time? Oh, over 400. I, I mean, I've interviewed American uh, war heroes from the war, Medal of Honor recipients, pilots, soldiers, Marines. Uh, I interviewed dozens of German fighter pilots, tank commanders, about 12 U-boat commanders, uh, uh, 12 SS generals, the last seven, seven surviving members of Hitler's bunker, uh, British pilots, and uh, two Victoria Cross recipients. And some of these uh, have YouTube videos on my channel where people can see the short documentary clips about these people, uh, many of them. And I just found it fascinating. I mean, some people had hobbies of collecting stamps or coins. I wanted to collect interviews. I wanted to get their stories in. <laughs> now, I can imagine one whole room in your house, just nothing but the recordings of these things and your documentation. I mean, that must have taken up at least at least more than one room. No, actually not, because after my, my, my second divorce, I lost a lot of that stuff. I never got it back, but at least I transcribed everything. But yeah, I've got a, uh, an office. I've got 
I probably got about a thousand pounds of books and research materials. And mo- now, in, in the digital age, it makes it a lot simpler, you know. Yeah, it does. That it does. But the meticulous work that you did on this book, and I know how much work you put into your books, uh, is absolutely phenomenal. What struck me as I was reading about these these uh, exploits of your three heroes here um, was how they constantly ran into the problem of poor equipment, the inability to get them repaired, uh, and, and they were still ended up flying these things. Yeah, well, the problem the problem they had in the Pacific, as opposed to being in Europe, was they were flying in a very different environment. Most of the time, they were flying over the ocean. Their, 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 their airstrips are on islands. There's a lot of salt air. Salt air corrodes. Uh, like being in the desert, sand would, would really disrupt things for the Germans and the uh, Commonwealth pilots in North Africa. Well, the salt air was, was really corroding a lot of stuff, especially uh, electrical components. And Joe Foss, on many occasions, he'd go into combat, not even realize his radio wasn't working, and uh, because it would just get, you know, and getting competent repair technicians was difficult because most of those guys were in the states building the things; they weren't going out to the field to repair these things. So that it, was a problem. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it was. It, it was amazing these the stories of each of these these individuals. Um, I made a notation for myself. Uh, to ask, who was General Vinegar Joe Stilwell, and what was his job in Burma? Vinegar Joe Stilwell was a very fascinating character. He was kind of like – he was subordinate to MacArthur, but people who served under him and uh, people who – historians of note who know a lot about him, uh, he – he really was like the patent of the uh, of the of the Asian theater. Stilwell was a, just a hard nosed guy, but he was like Omar Bradley. He would sit down with a private as a, as a two or three star general and open up a, a K ration, and he'd talk about back home and get to know the people. And he he was very personal with his subordinates, but he was very ruthless with his commanders who could not get the job done, like just like Patton was, and just like others. Now, I have another note here because uh, reading about what was gone with these guys in the AVG, what were uh, the blood chits, and what did they mean? The blood chits were on the back of their leather jackets written in Mandarin, basically stating that in, in, in their language that if a pilot was shot down, it would read on the back that I am an American pilot. I am here to help you, which was supposed to – Lighten the burden of pilots who were forced down in, in, in hostile territory to get assistance from the Chinese. Basically, it was kind of like a calling card. Yeah. Now, I found fascinating uh, Joe Force, the Brigadier General jo- Joseph Jacob Force in the Marine Corps. Uh, I found him extremely fascinating because he came across as a little bit of a daredevil, but also quite a gentleman. Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was a well. He was kind of like Boynton. He was kind of like a wild man, but with better table manners. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> because when you talk about the book, and I, I highlighted this, where he was trying to meet Lindbergh, and that's when his father finally got him a ride on the plane, which gave him his love for flying. Uh, but his his background, his attitude, of way of approaching it as a marine was far different than Pappy Boynton. It's like night and day. Totally different. Totally different characters, totally different people, different outlooks on life, 
totally different philosophies. I mean, they couldn't be more diametrically opposed in any other way. Well, he also made a comment that he never wanted to get involved in politics, but that's not how his life turned out, was it? No, because his friends kept telling him that he needed to run for you know state house, state legislature, whatever, which he did, and then he ran for governor, which he did. Uh, twice he was governor of South Dakota, but uh, he did a lot of good as governor, though. I mean, he also was very instrumental in charities because his daughter was born with a handicap, so he was very actively involved in the children's hospitals and things of that nature, making sure that they could operate uh, effectively as nonprofits without having the heavy burden of government oversight, uh, getting donations in. Uh, and Joe Boss was just a real – he was the real deal. He was just a really cool guy. In fact, I got a text message from a, my friend, actor Marshall Teague, who read the book. He, he called me, and people will remember Marshall from Roadhouse. He was a black-haired villain, Jimmy. Patrick Swayze, and uh, Marshall called me, and he used to go quail hunting with Joe Foss, and uh, and he said that uh, Joe's voice really comes out. He said, yeah, that's just the way he was, you know, and he was a really cool guy, and, uh, and Joe Foss had a lot of very influential political contacts. I mean, hell, I mean, he knew every president on a first-name basis. And in, in the Pacific, uh, Richard Nixon, when he was a naval officer, managed to get uh, Joe on a plane to get him back stateside and said, hey, I owe you, uh, if you ever need me, I owe you a favor. <laughs> so uh, from, from Nixon forward, uh, he, you know, he met Truman, of course. And, but from Truman all the way through uh, Reagan, he knew every president personally. Now, that I found absolutely amazing. But he knew them when they were active duty during World War II. He would run into well, them, and I was—I found that Nixon was so humble. You would think he'd be an arrogant SOB, but he came across as very, very humble in the, in the way he uh, portrayed him. Yeah, I mean, Joe likes Nixon because – well, he, he said he said he was humble. He uh, had no air of arrogance about him whatsoever. Now, that may have changed over time as he became vice president under Eisenhower and the later president of the United States, but – you know, like General Livingston, he got he got to meet Nixon and get to talk to him. He thought he was a very humble guy as well when Nixon gave him his Medal of Honor in Vietnam. So, you know, perspectives of people can be different. I mean, you can run into somebody, they're having a bad day, and they're a grumpy individual thinking, oh, this guy's not really going to be a, a good interview. But then again, after he's had something to eat, he's had time to settle down and think about things, then it's a totally different character. So you can't really – it's hard to broad brush someone or pinpoint someone as saying, well, he's a bad character, he's an arrogant character. We all have our moments, and I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yes, absolutely. Now, one thing you mentioned about Joe Force was hunting, and Joe Force had a – his father was a huge, huge in, influence on his life. And up until the day he passed, he was always thinking about his dad. His ability to hunt, though, and his ability as a gunner helped him – as an aviator, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Every fighter pilot, <clears throat> there are three types of fighter pilots. There are the guys who can fly but can't really shoot too well, but, you know, they do their job. Then you have the guys who can fly, who can shoot very well. They become aces. Then you have the guys who are superb shots and extraordinarily great pilots, and they become aces. And, uh, and Joe Foss had taken his boyhood uh, experience of hunting game animals and shooting varmints 
into uh, into his gunnery training when he was in Pensacola, and he was, he was a natural. Some people are just naturals. You may remember a guy named Hans Joachim Marseille. Uh, yes. He was a natural. He, some some pilots are natural shooters and natural pilots, and, and and you get that rare combination. Then you have what we call heroes. Well, you know, I, I loved this because I marked this paragraph. Uh, he was talking about his dad. He said, Dad taught us that a hunter is a conservator. Kill what you need and will eat. Never overhunt to affect the health of the herds and respect the land and all living things. We also fish for food more than recreation. If it did not go on the table, there was no reason to kill it, unless it was a varmint threatening livestock. I always get amused by these liberal city slickers who moan about hunting. Try to get educate these people that animal population control and land management is like trying to paint a running river. It ain't gonna happen. If that's not his voice, I don't know what is. Yeah, that that, that was Joe. And he laughed when he said it. But uh yeah, but Joe Foss is very serious about conservation. And uh even when he did his shows in Africa and in South America and North America, when he had his uh, Joe Foss outdoors and he had a couple of shows on hunting and uh they would always coordinate with the locals because they would have active safaris. They would actually let people pay to go hunt animals to keep certain herds down from overpopulating. And Joe got very interested in that uh, aspect of it. Mm, he did. Now, he lost his dad tragically in, in a freak, freak accident. Um, and I think that may have made him uh, more fond of his father. I don't know if that's the word I'm, I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of the proper words. Um, but it made his father more of a figure in his rest of his life. Well, like I say, I can't, I couldn't get into Joe's psyche as to why, but he, he thought a lot of his father. His father, as he says, was a very good man, a good, decent man, a Republican man where his mother was a Democrat. He couldn't figure out how that worked. But... Uh, <laughs> But he said that his, but his father was a good role model. Father lived by what he said. He he wasn't he wasn't like a a standard, you know, liberal today where do as I do, you know, do as I say, not as I do. He lived by what he preached. So Joe took that. Joe and his brother took that in, in, into adulthood with him. Now we're accustomed to seeing, you know, aviators. They all have a call sign. Uh, everyone's seen Maverick and uh, Top Gun. Um, and you're always accustomed to having an aviator having a call sign, but that wasn't so back then. They would get nicknames, no, but over time, those nicknames became their call signs. So he was called Smokey Joe. Smokey Joe, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and oftentimes, best. well, Go oftentimes, ahead. even the call, sometimes even the nicknames were not used as call signs. They just used colors and numbers like blue one, blue four, blue five, or red one, red six. They used uh, numbers and and colors, or in some other combination. Uh, Curtis LeMay, when he when he flew, or or when when Robin Oldsman flew, they he he would Cadillac one, Cadillac four, Buick four, Buick five. They they would they would create these, and then you know however they flew, that would be their call sign in the air. And they often changed those call signs on a regular basis, so the enemy wouldn't get a good fix on who was doing what. Unlike now, uh, was, unlike some of the Germans. <laughs> you know, he was sent to Guadalcanal, and that was no 
piece of cake. They thought, you know, you go into the tropics, you're going to be, you know, nice sun, lots of beach. But it was pure hell. Yeah, he caught malaria there instead of a lot of the other guys. Uh, and it just really racked him for, for, for many years. I had malaria, too. And I, just two years, what, three years ago in August, I had a relapse. So it, it can stay with you. And it, it really took a, took a hit on him. But he, he he finally aged out of it. And I'm aging out of it, too. So, But, yeah, there were a lot of problems with Guadalcanal. First of all, you know, you you had to, if you wanted to go wash your clothes in the river, you had to have armed sentries because of the crocodiles. Then you had, uh, yeah. Then you had the poisonous snakes. Then you had the ever-present visits by the Japanese. Uh, it, yeah, it, it was it was a very interesting time for those guys. Well, you know, in Guadalcanal when they got there, it was it was awful. I mean, barely even had an airstrip that you can call one there. But they also had, like you said, the harassment by the Japanese. One particular, they nicknamed Maytag Charlie. Yeah. about Maytag Charlie because you, if you think about the MASH TV series, they had their own version of a Maytag Charlie so I I flash back to the TV series thinking you know what was going on but uh, the Japanese I guess perfected it long before it hit uh, uh, Korea yeah he was just a nuisance pilot he'd fly around at night and he would just drop a few bombs here and there the purpose of it was to try to disrupt sleep, to try to keep the pilots awake so they wouldn't be that effective in daytime combat. And maybe if you get lucky, you kill a guy or you damage an aircraft or whatever. And uh, so it was just a nuisance raid. All, all the Air Forces pretty much in, in, in both theaters practiced that method of, of nuisance raids. Yeah. Now, there were times where, like I said, they could not get supplies, much less fuel uh, so Force had set up this ability to camouflage the planes that they did have to hold them in reserve to hide the fuel tanks to actually do mock-up planes. But he took a lot of heat for that. Yeah, he did. He did. The commanding general there, uh, Roy, General Roy Geiger, Major General Roy Geiger, later Lieutenant General Roy Geiger, was an overall command. But his brigadier was very angry at it because the brigadier general wanted him to have every plane up in the air on every mission, but Boss argued that, well, if we do that and we don't have something in reserve, the Japanese can come behind us and hit the airfield, destroy our depots and destroy our command posts and wreak havoc, and no one's here to take off and intercept them on the way in. So he decided he was going to just do it his own way. Well, his brigadier general found out about it and wanted to bounce him out of, out of the Marine Corps. And uh, But then General Geiger, who was an aviator, who was the only Marine aviator in history to command a uh, Marine Corps division, actually supported FOSS and said that it was a very logical application to have a reserve component in order to defend the airfield. Because if the main force went out in total force and came back and the airfield was under attack, if they destroyed the runways, there was no place for them to land. So, therefore, Boss said, well, we need to have at least four or five fighters keep them back. And sure enough, uh, the Japanese came in. They did a decoy mission. They got the Marines and the Army pilots and the Navy pilots off the island in the air, and they came around trying to bring their bombers in to crater the runway. But Boss and his guys on the ground got up and managed to take them out. Yeah, now, the Battle of Guadalcanal had the Tokyo Express, they called it, the Japanese Tokyo Express. And he was in the heart of that. And they, as I said, they were low, low, low on fuel. But Geiger had a letter in his pocket 
that told him where there was fuel, and he never opened it. He forgot about it. So Joe Foss had to go on a on a on an excursion. He had to go on a scavenger hunt to try to find out where this fuel was, and it took him a while to find it. But they found the the, the buried fuel containers that were you know. Then they had to strain all the fuel to get all the contaminants out of it. And uh, then after that, Roy Geiger admitted that he had totally forgotten the fact that they had buried that with a map showing where the fuel depots were. <laughs> now. I have a note here that I wrote down. I'm going to probably mispronounce the name. Who was Suburo Sakai? Suburo Sakai. And what is the Bush? And what is the Bushido code? The Bushido code is the code of the samurai. There was a certain code, sort of like the European code of chivalry, that was uh, supposed to be followed by noblemen. And uh, the Bushido code was uh, basically. You do not sneak attack your enemy, which is a, a, a contradiction in terms of look at Pearl Harbor, but understand something about Pearl Harbor. And, and Sabiro, in my interview with him, uh, he, just, he, he covered this, that all the Japanese pilots on the four carriers were told a declaration of war had been sent to Washington, D.C., letting them know that they were, they were now in a state of hostilities, and therefore they were attacking a legitimate enemy. The problem was that letter, that telegram arrived. On a Friday, and it wasn't read until the following Monday on December 8, 1941. So that's why we get the story of the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the attack might have been a sneak attack, but uh, but the declaration of war was sent. It just wasn't read. So Sabiro believes that a warrior needs to introduce himself to his enemy and not harm noncombatants, which we know the Japanese and their majority in the army uh, didn't follow that code. But uh, he just lived by a code. And like most of the other pilots did, and he and Foss became best friends for decades after the war. They did, and he would show up at the reunions and was welcomed, as in with the World War One pilots that flew with the German aces that were shooting at them. It, once war is over, they were um, friends. Oh yeah, I mean I've interviewed dozens of the the, the British, uh, some uh, Australians, uh, South African, German pilots from World War II, and American pilots, of course. And, uh, yeah, I mean, once the war was over with the aviators, it was like, well, we did our job, so there's no reason to hate each other anymore. And uh, I used to go to the reunions almost every year in Germany where 16 nations would be represented. I mean, we even had former Soviet military pilots from World War II come in. I have a couple of great personal stories about those. But, uh, yeah, the pilots kind of like buried the hatchet. They didn't have any axe to grind, really. Unlike uh, the ground, the ground fighting was a lot dirtier. It was a lot more personal. Uh, but for the pilots, it was uh, just business as usual. Well, I, I was on edge when I was reading about uh, Joe Foss's crash into the into the ocean, and he couldn't swim, and there's sharks around, yeah. and he's about five miles off of shore. Uh, there was like, forget about it. Put your head between your legs and kiss your sweet patootie goodbye. Uh, but it was riveting reading that segment and his rescue and who rescued him. Yeah, it was a group of nuns with a priest on an island that had been uh, – they had fled after the Japanese had invaded, and they took sanctuary on the small little asshole. And uh, Joe luckily just happened to wash up on it. So, Well, there was a lot more than that because he did get rescued. And he was listening to the stories of what they were telling about the atrocities that the Japanese soldiers were committing against these religious individuals and the villagers. 
including rape and murder and everything else that was going on. And it was heartbreaking. But he was such a gentleman. He gathered up food and went back. Yeah, he did. And when he got rescued, when he got picked up, he uh, actually rigged a, a drop where he could give them much needed supplies from uh, from his air base, the Guadalcanal. Because he knew they were now, short on supplies. Now, was it Foss or was it Marshall that went with supplies to the front lines? Because they had food and stuff when they got their supplies, but they knew the guys at the front. And he deliberately went to the front line and looked them in the eye and was just amazed that they still had the courage to fight. Yeah, that was Foss, yeah. He, uh, he had a very interesting take on that, too, because he said the most stunning thing about that was that most of those guys hadn't eaten in days, if, if not even a week, and uh, and they, and to get out of the front-line positions, put them under Japanese sniper and machine gun fire, even while the Americans controlled the airstrip at Henderson Field. And uh, so he took it upon himself to gather as much stuff as he could, even stuff that family and friends sent from home, and he would go into the, he would go into the uh, positions with the Marines and the soldiers, and he would just start handing out stuff because he knew that they were really suffering, and uh, that endeared a lot of people to him. Well, I found it very, very humorous when he met Caldwell, this Aussie oh my God. and just trying to interpret what the Australian was trying to say to him, it was as if he was speaking a completely different language. Uh, and it was That's a very hysterical area of the book. Yeah, that was pretty interesting because because uh, uh, at that time, back in 80, 80, well, 88 through 2000, when I was in constant contact periodically with Joe, you know, and I was gathering all my information from my interviews, I'd always wanted to write a book about Marseille. And when I mentioned that, that's when Foss said, oh, yeah, 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 Caldwell mentioned that guy. That's the first time I heard the name. And then I told him about Marseille and how Marseille's friend, Bernard Schroer, almost killed Caldwell. Uh, and, and put him out of action for a few months. And he said, well, let me tell you about my meeting with this guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was pretty funny. And I have a niece living in Sydney, Australia. She's from, she's from Australia. My niece uh, lives in Sydney, and I have, uh, uh, I'm good friends with uh, Richard Carthew, who's the nephew of Graham Buckland, who was Marseille's 65th victory. And I, I, I let Richard uh, see the parts of that book, and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 standard Australian talk right there. The average American wouldn't understand any of it." Now, isn't isn't oh, your yeah. your book about Marseille being made into a series? Did I read that correctly? Uh, we're still working on that. We're still we've got the producers interested right now with the uh, the liberal Biden banking system going up upside down haywire. <laughs> A lot of people are very nervous about investing in anything right now. So we're hoping that'll clear up in the next year or so, maybe after 2024 when Common Sense returns to D.C. Uh, and but we have a couple other projects that are much much less expensive to produce that already have interest, and we're working on them now. Colin, this yes. is on the co-host CS. Very inspiring stories, but I want to know. If- have you ever been invited to to share these these stories with um, school age children? I really believe they missed a lot out on history, and you know, outside of what they've been taught in the books, and most of it has nothing to do with you know our true history and and the people who really made this country what it is and those who defended it. 
I was just curious, have you been able to um, get invitations to speak at schools or colleges? I, well, when I was teaching uh, as a professor, I would, you know, use some of these examples in, 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 the, in the appropriate courses. But, uh, yeah, I've gone and, and done talking. I, I have speaking engagements with high schoolers, one middle school, I think, but mostly high schoolers. Uh, their, their history teachers were people who I knew, and they would ask me to come in and just talk about, you know, my personal contact with these guys, place the, what they're learning in school in context. But that was many years ago. I don't think that they're teaching anything now about any of this. No, I think you, they're more worried about – Oh, I'm sorry, but you are doing now a YouTube uh, series of videos called Forgotten History Channel. Are you going to make that available to schools also to begin the education process to bring the true history of everything back? Well, uh, in fact, in about six minutes, I have a Zoom meeting with producer Lang Elliott, formerly of TriStar Pictures, and we're going to be discussing that very thing about doing a series on those YouTube channels for streaming for public con- for public content consumption and then I'm working with another producer his friend Garrett Sutton and we've been recording uh, shows uh, and we're going to be doing a 24 part series for uh, middle school and high school kids on the uh, history of money and uh, how it developed and how commerce was created Wow well I'm not going to keep you uh, back from your, your Zoom call I'm going to do a Zoom meeting later on tonight. Anyway, man, technology today. I remember sticking the dime in the old slide using the rotary phone. But your book is called Above the Pacific, Three Medal of Honor Fighter Aces of World War II Speak. Um, in the show description, you know, I put down the uh, link to your website, uh, HeatonLewisBooks.com, and there they can see the movies that you have coming up off of your books, your consultation, uh, who you write speeches for, and you've got a thumb in single, just about every single pie here. And you've got to let me know when you come down here to Buford. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'll let you know. Um, I'll have to keep in touch with him. I'm in the process of packing boxes and still writing and getting ready to move to a new house. So, yeah, I'm uh, kind of like sandbagged right now, carrying a lot of, a lot of weight. <laughs> well, I wish you luck on the new house, and you guys send me your new address too, uh, because we have to have a drink together, like we absolutely. used to do. <laughs> like yeah, we absolutely. Used to do, you know, <laughs> I miss those days. I miss going to the Tea Party Coalition conventions and hanging out with you and everyone else, and that's where we met a lot of great people too. Well. That's true. Those were pretty good times back in the day. Hopefully, they'll resurrect in the not-too-distant future. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I hope so. Colin Heaton, God bless you, and we'll talk. You know, you got my number, too. We'll talk. Okay, thanks. Take care. All right, take care. God bless. All right. Colin Heaton, check out his website, HeatonLewisBooks.com. I mean, it's fantastic. He's an absolutely wonderful man. And I'm sorry he had to jump off on the Zoom call because I was going to ask him some other questions. But we will carry on as it is, Curtis. As always, um, so much that's going on in this world and in this country, and most of what's going on in this country is not – in the best interest of this country or or the citizens, but it looks like we got maybe 
Oh, it's probably Sweet Sue. I'm not sure. But yes, it looks. It is Sweet Sue up there. Say, say hi, special hi to Sue, yeah. and special hi to Hello. those that have been joining the um, chat room here on Blog Talk Radio. Good to see old friends showing up. Haven't seen them in a while. Sarge and Panky and yeah. a few others. Um, we are up on YouTube and Facebook, and we're still working on getting the new format up so it'll look really more professional and better videos, and you'll actually see our guests rather than just seeing a picture of them and see what your handsome face looks like too, Curtis. Get you up on there. Uh, but if you want a good laugh, uh, I don't I'll know if you saw the... <laughs> oh, you can just put a paper bag over your face. That'll do. <laughs> anyway, um, That's cheaper. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bye. Uh, Stephen Colbert had interviewed... Queen Camilla Mella Harris, and he was asking her about her duties uh, at the White House. And uh, I wish I had downloaded the video, <laughs> uh, but this was uh, put up by Liberty Hub. He writes, uh, Andrew West writes, things are so bad that even liberal-leaning Stephen Corb- Colbert couldn't keep Harris from awkwardly having a sidestep question about what her job actually is. Harris began her exchange with Colbert on Wednesday by acknowledging her life as VP is similar to what's depicted on the HBO comedy Veep. Now, I've never watched that. Um, I've never seen that, so I have no idea what that is. And Harris says, I know you love Veep. Well, HBO, I don't don't turn it on. Um, She pointed a finger at Colbert, and Colbert jokingly answered, I do, I love Veep. Is it accurate? Obviously the vice president in this TV series has not heck of a lot to do and laughs a lot. So Vice President Camilla Harris awkwardly laughs, her cat call, after the late show Stephen Colbert asked her out for not, called her out for not answering his question about what the actual role of the vice president is. And she responds, there are bits of it that are actually quite accurate, she grinned before sharing an antidote about one of her staffers accidentally filled her office with smoke by lighting the fireplace without opening the flue. And then Colbert teamed up a softball for vice president, but she whiffled and she answered, one of the themes of the show is uh, is that her character, Delina Mayer, is frustrated by the sometimes vague duties of the role. It's a high constitutional office, but does not describe what you're supposed to be doing. Does that ring true? Like what's the actual role on a daily basis that as you found it, Colbert asked her. Well, her answer was, well, I had the great privilege of serving with Joe Biden, who is the president of the United States and was vice president. So she still doesn't answer the question. She goes, does he understand what it's like to be vice president, Colbert asked. It means Biden had already been vice president. Does he know what it means to be vice president? Well, she answers, he does, he does. He really is a true partner. He understands that job. And remember, we came in during the height of the pandemic, and so much of the work was about, okay, we've got to cover a lot of bases, and let's figure out between us how we can do it. But he's an extraordinary leader, and I wish people could see what I see, because there's only one person who sits behind the resolute desk. And the decision that person has to make are the decisions that nobody else in the country can make. And he's an extraordinary leader. He really is. That's an excellent answer. And uh, the question was, what's the job the vice president? Colbert grinned. 
Coalition hires again to laugh, and your answer is part of the job, I'm guessing. So she never answers what her job is. What is she doing? He made her the border czar. So what the heck is she doing? Do you see her do anything outside of going on talk shows and cackling? I don't see her doing anything. No. No, I think they, they keep her out of <laughs> out of view purposely because she's she's an embarrassment to them. I mean, think about this. She was the first to um leave as a candidate. Um on the um, debates that time, oh. and her party As, yeah, for the got rid of her, yet, yeah. yet they First picked one to drop out of the, to be vice yeah, out of the presidential yeah. run. Yeah, so the answer is, well, she still doesn't know what her job is. Nope. She still doesn't know what her job is. And I've still got Colin up here, so i got to get him off the screen. And we'll have our next guest calling in very shortly from the Heritage Foundation, Hannah Davis. So let me just get this off. And there we go. And then we'll have Hannah Davis come back on. Just bear with me as I play around with this. Okay. Now, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, it seems the COVID investigations that the House is doing is starting to get people to come out of the woodwork and answer honestly. Now, here's, here's a refreshing thing. Actually, answer honestly. And this was in welovetrump.com. But I found this also backed up by several other places also. Um, according to a letter shared by a U.S. Freedom Flyer co-founder, Josh Yoder, the FAA admitted to an airline pilot that his myocarditis was possibly Vaccine-induced it. Induced it. Oh, my tongue is in backwards. Quote, Yoder tweeted this quote, the FAA has admitted to an airline pilot that his myocardius was possibly vaccine-induced, yet without further investigation, they continue to jeopardize the safety of air travel and the health of pilots by pushing non-FDA-approved injections against their own aeromedical guidance. So he gets, he posted the actual letter from the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation, FAA administration. And, of course, there is some redactions of the name and everything. But, all right, our review of your medical records has established that you are eligible for a first-class medical certificate. This certificate you now hold is valid until the normal date of expiration. Your caution to abide by Title 14 of the CFR section, blah, 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 relating to operations during medical deficiency. Because of your history of possible vaccine-induced myocarditis, uh, hyper, I'm sure, Sue's probably laughing because I can't pronounce these words, hyperlipidemia, a ganglion cyst uh, removal from the left hand, and knee pain. Operation of aircraft is prohibited at any time new symptoms or adverse changes occur in your health status. But how many times have we heard about a pilot having an incident while operating a flight with passengers? 
We, we hear about this all the time. And yet they still yeah. insist that the vaccines are safe and still insist that they give them to people. I mean, isn't it, isn't it funny? Um, well, it's not funny, but it seems like every day I look at um, some of the news headlines on online. I've seen a bunch of young people dying. I mean, 42 years old, 30-something years old. They never really say what the cause of death is, but you have to wonder if it's related to uh, that vaccine or so-called vaccine. I mean, they dropped like flies. A friend of mine lost his grandson, a dear friend of mine lost his grandson, 11 years old, after getting the jab. The kid was perfectly healthy, nothing wrong with him, and he died from a heart attack. Now, our reports of the, the report three recent incidents of pilots suffering medical emergencies, with the most recent being an American Airlines flight making an emergency landing due to an incapacitated pilot. The pilot was incapacitated due to chest pains. Emergency landing in Houston on Saturday the third of this month. So, per the FAA, pilots undergo annual physicals under 40 and every six months over 40. All right. Um, the first officer of a Virginian, a Virgin Australian regional flight from Adelaide to Perth reportedly became incapacitated after suffering a heart attack 30 minutes into the flight, according to the Aviation Herald. A British Airways pilot reportedly collapsed just before his scheduled commercial flight from Cairo, Egypt to London's Heathrow Airport. The veteran pilot suffered a heart attack in the cruise hotel. And this is happening to pilots, but what about the average everyday Joe like you and me? And we're hearing the adverse effects of these vaccines. Now, they weren't tested. They were rushed for approval. Under our, our medical regulations, you can't force a person to take a vaccine if it's an experimental drug. But yet they forced how many millions of people here in the United States to take these vaccines to preserve their jobs? Or in order just to go into a restaurant, you need a vaccine passport in New York City you needed? I can't mm. tell you how many millions of people have been forced to take this vaccine when they probably didn't need it. People that had the, the uh, COVID-19 and still went ahead and had the vaccine, like a family member of mine. And now she says, Ever since she had the vaccine, she's never felt the same. She recovered from COVID, and she was doing fine, and she was convinced to take the vaccine. Thank God she never went for the second jab, and she's not going to, thank God. This changes your body. It alters your DNA, and what makes you think it's safe? I mean, you you take years, sometimes decades, for a new drug to hit the market before it's fully approved by the FDA. This didn't happen in this instance. It was a rush. We had to do this. How many billions of dollars did Pfizer, Moderna, and the other, I forget what the third one is, uh, vaccine companies, pharmaceutical companies, how much billions of dollars did they make off of us? And you still see commercials on TV today urging people to get the vaccine when we're hearing story after story after story of adverse effects. I'm not telling you not to do it. But do your research. Do your research. And if you don't have to do it, don't. That's my recommendation. I'm not telling you to do it or not. 
it's your decision. Your body, your decision. But please, folks, you know, do your research before you stick something strange in your body. That's just so my preach for now. That's my preach for now. The thing about it is, you know, the people that are dying, it's hard to say that it's connected to um, to to the, the shot, as we call it, or the jab, in, in a way because of the fact that it, like you say, changes your RNA and messes up with your DNA. And it's really Actually, no way to really connect it. So people saying, yes, well, yes, it, it, yes, it's not, yes, it's not the shock. No, yes there, yes, there is, Curtis. Yes, there is. Because I have a, a friend of mine who runs a funeral home. And they're saying that when a person passes away, they can tell whether or not they had the, um, what is it? If they had, whatever, with the vaccine, not the vaccine, the, but when you have, are exposed to COVID. No, if when you're exposed to actually to have been exposed to COVID, it leaves something in your body so that they know that, hey, yeah, you were exposed to COVID. But they're finding that people that had the jab. Because that's what I'm that talking about, the jab. Up, when they have the jab, once they show up in the, in the funeral home and they get the death certificate, there's a large majority of people that are now showing up, especially younger people, that die from a heart attack that had the jab within a short time period of their passing. And they're starting to see a correlation of it. So, yes, they are starting to track these things. And I'm sure Sue, who's listening in, probably heard more about it. Uh, but I've been, like, talking to my friends. And uh, uh, the coroner, the county coroner, is a friend of mine. Well, actually, he, he retired. He retired last year. And he was telling me about this and what was coming across his desk. And so, yeah, they're, they're seeing a correlation with the number of deaths of people that have had the jab in a short period of time before they're passing. And well, sure not, they're not putting that out there, though. They're not putting that yeah. out to the, the public. Because I hear people no. who have died and whatnot, and the minute you ask the family about the, the, the connection to the jab, it's like, no, no, um, he or she didn't die from the jab, you know. It's almost like they're defending um, the decision that they made to take the jab is like, you know, well, I'm still here. Well, the thing is, you know, it wasn't your time yet. But, you know, these things happen differently in, in people as far as when they will impact you the most. Well, it's like, like a time I said, you know, folks, release. do your research, talk to your medical doctor or your medical, uh, whoever your medical guru is. Um, Talk to them. Get guidance from them because I did that. I took my mom in. I sat down with my doctor, my GP, and we went over everything, our medical records and everything, what are the side effects and so forth. And his recommendation, and he had COVID, and several members of his staff had COVID. And he said, with the heart condition that your mother has and you have, I recommend you don't do it. So, folks, like I said, Sit down with your medical professional and make that decision with them. But don't let someone else tell you what to do or not to do. Oh, please don't. I mean, our lives are too short as it is. We don't need to have them cut any shorter. All right, well, we're waiting for Heritage Dana, uh, Hannah, not Dana, Hannah Davis to call in in a few moments. Um, 
So I think I'm going to take a small, quick break. And let me see what I got. Oh, here. Let's do a little Dave Bray last call, and we'll be back very shortly.
right, and we're back, and I'm your hostess with the least mostest of Radio Chickity Annie, along with my co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett, and we have our final victim in our room with us tonight from the Heritage Foundation, Hannah Davis. Good afternoon, Hannah. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? All right. I mean, man, have you got a job now over at Heritage? And the uh, you are now. <laughs> we, let me, let, let can me we just, stay busy? <laughs> you're the research assistant for the Border Security and Immigration Center. Man, talk about. We were talking about three ring circuses earlier. This is a huge three ring circus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We stay busy over at Heritage. Oh, that that you do, that you do. And you wrote an excellent article about three things the left doesn't want you to say about the southern border. And oh man, I, I mentioned earlier to another guest, it falls right into what Herman Cain preached before he passed away. He said there are three things the left will do when you know you're winning the fight. They will sin, S-I-N. They will switch the subject. They will ignore the facts, and then they will name call. And you basically covered that in your article. Yeah. Yes, and that's exactly what they do. You know, they they if you if you say the truth, they call you every name under the book. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it's true, and it's something that people who believe in a strong border have to deal with every single day. Yeah, you know, you're right. Rather than acknowledge the problem, let alone pursue real solutions, the left only cares about what words are used and labels anything it dislikes as racist. Ignoring the fact that the drug cartels don't discriminate. Fentanyl doesn't care what race, what gender, what color you are, what religion. It doesn't care. It will indiscriminately kill anyone and everyone. And I say this is their version, the cartel's version, of mass destruction here in the United States. I agree. I agree, yes. And it's, it's all for profit. The cartels operate like any other business, and, and, and you're exactly right. They don't discriminate. They don't discriminate when it comes to children either. There's children that are, um, you know, falling victim to fentanyl and, and, and other circumstances um, when they cross through. And um, no one wants to talk about the actual root of the issues. No one wants to talk about the policies. The left would rather focus on um, name-calling and, and, and asserting that everyone's racist if you disagree with them or saying that you use nativist rhetoric to refer to, you know, this mass influx of illegal migration as um, as an invasion. So um, that's those are the shots they take, and the, the right just has to stay firm and, and be ready to take the blows. Now, about a decade ago or a little bit longer, there was a huge surge in medical tourism where American citizens would travel to Mexico either for dentistry or for whatever, tummy tuck or whatever. Now, recently, four Americans crossed over. You know, all four were friends because uh, one of them was going to have some sort of cosmetic tummy tuck or whatever she was going for. Two are dead now. And two have, I, I do believe they're now back in the United States, but this is the newest thing. There is a whole big new, um, I'm trying to think of what the word I'm trying to use, a business arising out of these cartels kidnapping Americans crossing over. Yes, yes. So they, the cartels have complete control of the border, and, and, and no one gets through illegally without the say-so and paying the, the cartel. 
Um, so, yeah, it's it's becoming more and more of an issue because, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we'd think of um, gang violence or cartel violence down south of the border as deeply rooted within Mexico or, or in South America. And it's getting it's, it's encroaching upon our sovereign nation. It's encroaching upon our border that we can't even have American citizens go for a tummy tuck without without being shot just mere miles outside of a border entry gate. Well, the idea to them is, is that if you're an American, you're crossing over the border for medical tourism, you've got money. So now it doesn't yeah. matter if you cross legally or illegally. You, We know you have money so because you're coming over to pay for this. So you have probably cash on you, too. So we'll hold you for ransom. We'll take whatever you got. We'll hold you for ransom. And oh, if you don't, they don't pay, so what? You know, We'll just dispose you in the desert. It doesn't matter to us. And then we'll go on to the next set of victims. And our government is not doing a single thing about that. No, the government's only exacerbating the ongoing issue with the policies that they routinely take away and or put in place. And I agree, yes, the, the cartels, most, you know, the, the most likely they did have money, and they probably did if they were coming down for a surgery. Um, but, and, and, and like I said earlier, you know, globally, um, cartels, human trafficking industry, uh, it's a $150 billion global industry. But south of the border, um, it's about 13 to $15 billion that the cartels make from smuggling, A, fentanyl, and B, uh, human beings themselves, and sometimes at the same time. You know, since Biden came in office, you're right that 5.4 million illegal aliens have entered that we know of. When we have no idea that those that those gotaways that we don't know about. So the number is much higher than that. And recently they had the hearings over in Congress and uh, Arizona Cochise County Sheriff Mark Daniels uh, testified before there. And he was saying 43% of his jail population are border-related crimes. Now, I remember doing a show, oh, geez, uh, probably about eight or ten years ago, and I was talking about illegal immigration at that time, and I used an example of New Jersey jail I was talking about where one-third of the inmates there were illegal aliens. But the number now is rising astronomically. Yes, it's it's skyrocketing, and um, you know these 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 people they come and they testify and they they want help from it. They're not here for a political agenda. It's a, it's a national security agenda. And even more recently, at the last hearing a couple of days ago, um, Chief Chief Ortez um, he he noted that the Godaways he would assume that the number they have that CBP releases and that the news media outlets use probably about 10 to 20 percent lower than it really actually is and so that also you know goes to show that i mean almost the entire population of the rio Grande valley is actually disseminated into the nation itself population wise i'm not saying those exact people but the same number and for the chief to sit there and testify that it's probably actually 10 to 20 percent higher is, is very frightening and concerning that is that is but no it's not an invasion no, 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 we don't have to worry. It's not an invasion. You know, heaven forbid you say the word, you are now a racist. But we're talking about. Yes, or if you say there's But it's not just people coming from Mexico. They're coming from, what was it? Someone said at one point, 42 different nations have been crossing the southern border because it's easier to do. And we're seeing a higher. I'm sure it's gotten higher, of, too. Of Russians and Chinese. I mean, 
tell me this is not a planned invasion. It is. It is because these Chinese nationals and these Russians, and they tend, they tend to have more money, and they typically come through the northern border um, at the whims of the cartel. Just because they're going through the northern border rather than the southern border doesn't mean that they're not still using the cartels as the vehicle to do so. And, uh, you know, roughly I've heard four to seven, upwards to, to about 12K ahead to get through the southern border. But these Chinese nationals and these Russians, they're paying, paying much more to the cartels. And so I, I think this is going to be an ongoing trend where the cartels start to focus globally. The southern cartels start to focus globally on other nations and try to get them into the northern border. You know, I was looking for something, uh, legislation that recently passed, and I don't remember if it was in this uh, article or, or, no, the one on human trafficking. The Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. What the heck is that? <laughs> it's a uh, It's a sheep it's a wolf in sheep's clothing sorry um it's i i really do believe and i call it a tvpra most people do just because it's such a mouthful we do fully believe that section 235 should be repealed i mean it just only incentivizes minors these unaccompanied children to go and make this 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 trek by themselves or with cartel members that they don't know. Um, basically, the TVPRA just gives expedited processing benefits and certain accommodations to these minors that come. And so the, this, the Traffic Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, coupled with Secretary Mayorkas's repeated saying that, you know, they're not going to turn away any minors at the border. It just, it's, a, it's a breeding ground for these children to come here alone via the cartels and Insanity ensues from that, and unfortunately, it's ongoing because the current policies we have are only incentivizing these children to make to make this perilous journey. Um, I was listening to a hearing recently, and there was a four-year-old boy who was found near near the border by himself, shoeless. His parents were already in America. Situation, and the cartels are the only people that are benefiting from it. No, and you have down here human trafficking as a global business. It generates $150 billion in illegal profits. Mm-hmm. Um, last fiscal year, arrests rose 50%. Uh, convictions soared by 80%. And the vast majority, 72 of those, 72% of those trafficked uh, come here illegally. Uh, many are women and children, the most vulnerable. And uh, estimate 60% of the unaccompanied children are caught by cartels and then exploited through child pornography and drug trafficking. And as you said, uh, the kids come over here alone, and then they're headed, handed over to alleged family members. But um, that's not true, is it? That's not the case, not at all. Um, you know, there used to be a Trump-era policy where fraudulent families were detected at the border when they came through DNA testing. And although it was very effective, and I'm fairly positive, over 6,000 fraudulent families were in fact detected and so it doesn't exist anymore and so those type of mitigating um, policies aren't in place and so these children are coming across and once they get through and they're screened they apparently go into the hands of these sponsors that have been vetted but in all actuality the Biden administration to to meet its self-induced own emergency uh, because these are it's Biden's broken border um, has slashed vetting times and so these children are actually going into 
into the, the arms of people that are already associated with the cartels, or they get somewhere and they're supposed to be going to a family member, and someone comes up to them and they've never they've never met them before. And so uh, it's cyclic, it's vicious, and it's cyclic. And I, I'd say it's really hard for these children to, to to outrun the grasp of the cartel because the cartel may operate the majority of the time below the southern border, but that doesn't mean that you know their networking skills don't go past the southern border into the interior of the nation. Well, there have been, you know, reports of cartel members uh, forming up with gangs and everything here in the United States. Uh, and we already have Mexican soldiers crossing our border. So why wouldn't we think that the cartel is not also crossing the border to enforce their policies and to prevent our government from doing what we need them to do is to protect the American citizens and our national sovereignty, which they're not doing at all. But instead, this national action plan to combat human trafficking, I managed to say that, instead promotes equity, inclusion, and gender. What the heck does that have to do with illegal immigration? What does that have to do with immigration at all? Exactly my point, because... We spoke earlier about how fentanyl doesn't discriminate, but neither do the, the cartels. And so they don't care what, what race, creed, color, gender you are. And so the fact that Biden is pushing this, this equity narrative, this agenda, is, is one thing. But the fact that he's going to do it rather than focus on implementing good border policy and border enforcement on top of that, um, which would include deterrence, detaining, and, de and deporting eventually – um, he's doing the complete opposite, and, and he's involving equity and gender and, and, and inclusion in, in things um, that have nothing to do with it. And it goes to show how out of touch he really is, I think, you know, and, and he may find those things to be important, and they very may well be in a different realm, but not right here. We need to secure the border, and, and talking about equity uh, has nothing to do. There's no equity at the border. Um, so if he really was concerned, he would he would start to, he would start to uh, enforce the border policies we have, and he's just not. He's simply not. And that's the best way I can explain him to other people, that he's just out of touch. He's, he's not in tune with what's really going on. No, he's not at all. And with this sham hearing that they had, uh, you had this judge from El Paso, uh, I can't even pronounce his last name, uh, testifying that using the word racist, oh, I'm sorry, using racist language such as invasion, encourage violence like the 2019 shooting at Walmart in El Paso that left 23 dead and 23 more injured. How do you equate what happened in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, with the illegal immigration? I, I'm not following what this judge is trying to get across. Um, He's saying that it's claiming a false narrative against individuals and perpetrates violence. How did that perpetrate yeah. violence? Uh, he, Judge Samanego is um, he's an interesting guy, to say the least. I think his point was, was that um, when the right or when anyone uses the term illegal alien, migrant, horde, invasion, it fuels this supposed racist narrative, and I think he wants to find a way to connect that to the violence that happened with his with his mass shooting in his hometown, which had no no sense of connection. And the Republicans on um, that were there testifying, and the representatives that were there were very quick to shut him down and and said to not try and conflate the two in any way. Yeah. And um, I think. Was... The... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was... 
I was just going to say, but he was also saying that the problem with drugs and stuff at the border is not the illegal immigration smuggling it over. It was Americans doing it. Huh? Right, which I find very hypocritical that he can't understand how the cartels and an open border and drug flows all go hand in hand, right? But he can understand somehow um, how the mass shooting that happened at an El Paso Walmart is somehow connected to the right saying that it's an invasion. So he is not able to connect very obvious things, but is very, very willing to just reach and try and connect other things. And it, it's it's very interesting, and it goes to show that he's got his own agenda. But, you know, it, it's not the Biden border crisis. No, you can't call it that. Trump did this, no. right? <laughs> if you if – you, yeah, if you call it if you call it Biden's border crisis, if you call it if you even refer to the border as Biden, if you dare put his name in the same sentence, they get so upset, they get very heated about it. And um, I mean, it is though. When you know when Biden took office, he got rid of. I mean, I think he. I mean, total, he's he's done two hundred and sixteen, hundred and ninety-six executive actions. And once he took office, eighty-nine of those dissolved the previous administration's um, policies. And so if it's, if it's not Biden's border crisis, then who is it? Because we, we also know it's Secretary Mayorkas' at the end of the day, but who's his boss? It's Biden. It's Biden's border crisis, mm-hmm. and we're going to keep saying that. Oh, and yet, but we do have a border czar, Queen Camilla Miller Harris, <laughs> right? Do we? we? We do, yes. Yes, <laughs> we do. Who well, could not define her own job to Stephen Colbert on his show. Could not even say what the vice president does. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, we're not in the best shape here, are we? Sits there, looks really pretty, cackles a lot, and she gets paid by the taxpayers. I'd love to have a job like that. I really would. So would I. We'd make so much money, wouldn't we? (laughs) And we're prettier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, he's... Biden, not only on day one, using executive orders, reversed what Trump had done at the border, he is still fighting to prevent the reinstatement of Title 42, which helped protect Mm -hmm. us immensely. And and, uh, thankfully, the courts have so far been upholding Title 42, uh, but it's not going to be looking good that it's going to withstand much more, will it? No, it's uh, we're we're pretty worried about what it's going to look like once it once it goes away, if it does, if, which we're you know likely it will in the next month or so, or less than. And um, it's really interesting. I think that you know I always like to say that Title 42 is the left's least favorite COVID policy, um, because what does it do? It keeps the nation safe from unnecessary illegal immigration, and thus the crime that comes with it, the ODs and fentanyl that comes with it. There's a lot more than just the fact that it's a health policy, but it also prevents and mitigates so much else. And um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be. Get ready to see the numbers just skyrocket. Just get ready. Yeah, but because you think they already we, we are, need, but they're going to shoot through the roof. Yeah, we need a vaccine passport or have to wear a mask to go into certain establishments or board a plane. Well, that's relaxing now. But mm-hmm. we don't screen the immigrants coming over the border legally or illegally, uh, and we see a rise in not just transmission of COVID, leprosy, uh, measles, rubella, and you can go down a whole list of diseases that were eradicated 
decades ago. Mm-hmm. It was finally free and clear. And now we see them rising again. And when you see cases of leprosy of, in police offices, that means you're in direct contact with the element, which is the illegal alien that they are, are handling in the streets. We have illegal aliens being put up in hotels and houses and whatever, but we mm-hmm. have U.S. veterans and American citizens sleeping on the street because they have no place to go. And it's mm-hmm. an upside-down world in this administration. It is, and, and it's not like they see it. You know, and, and, and most immigration policy, a lot of it gets handled in D.C., and I operate and I work in D.C., and I walk and I, I see the, the homeless population, and I see that, you know, a good amount of them are veterans. And regardless if they are or not, they're still American citizens, and so they should be put first before any illegal alien ever would be. And they're all on the streets outside of Union Station getting removed before Biden gives a speech because it looks bad. But they're there because the migrants have taken up all of the beds at the um, the shelters. And so, you know, the, yeah. the administration really has let the American people know. And the American people have opened their eyes to see that they're not number one. They're not, they're, not, they're not put at the forefront. They're not the first thing that comes to mind when the national security of the nation is taken into consideration at all. It, they're just not, and it's a shame. And the American people deserve better. Absolutely, because with our American homeless, American veterans and regular American homeless, they're not getting the services that we taxpayers are paying for them, such as Section 8 housing, food stamps, Medicaid, uh, education, job placement. They're not getting that. All those services are going to the illegal immigrants, and they're being spread throughout Mm -hmm. the United States, plus the NGOs, the non-government agencies, a lot of them run through your religious institution, are receiving thousands of dollars per person they process and put into the fabric of our society, completely ignoring American citizens and American veterans in need of those very same services. This is an outrage. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I mean, the NGOs have, I like to say they're just an arm of the government themselves. It's become so corrupt, and they're all connected. And if you really start to research it and look into it, it's a web. It's a dirty, vicious web. And and you're right. It's a shame that supposedly our taxpayers' money is supposed to go to veterans. It's supposed to go to these types of things, and VAs and whatnot. But, no, it's, it's all going schools and the hospitals that can't afford their bills down in El Paso where Judge Samanego's from, and he says everything's fine, you know, where crime is up. You know, I mean, there's been so much money that has come only out of the taxpayers' pockets um, to, to pay for this illegal immigration crisis that, that Biden has created. And, you know, because of that, I mean, there's estimates that it's like $4.6 billion annually just for to go to the public school systems out of taxpayers' money because of the influx of migrants. I mean, that's, that's, that's outlandishly just a huge amount. And if we had ever, ever, ever put $4.6 billion into the veterans, or into any other um, any any other special grouping that is an American citizen. Do you know how much progress or change and good things and benefits could come from that? But no, we're putting it towards illegal aliens, and you know we're we're making sure that you know their ER bills are taken care of, and and their hospital bills in general are taken care of, and and their schools, you know, they've all got the the supplies they need, um, except for the teachers, you know, because now she's got 20 extra kids that don't speak English as their first language in a classroom that was probably already maxed out. And so no one, no one thinks about these, these things, and, and if they do, 
I mean, that's I, I like to think that Biden doesn't think about it and that this isn't purposeful, but it is. And the goal is. is eventually, I guess, is that they think that these people who were let in illegally, you know, you start to let them vote in local elections and you let them vote nationally, and they think that they're going to they're gonna lean left. And um, that's something I hope we never get to find out um, because it's a shame that, you know, these, these jurisdictions are allowing people to vote uh, when they don't even have a legal status. Gee, Washington, D.C., uh, New York. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's just because D.C. now, they just said, yeah, it, illegal aliens can vote. So, oh, yeah, that's right. They're going for statehood. So they need their citizens. Oh, wait, wait, wait. These aren't citizens, but they get, do have the right to vote uh, to determine mm-hmm. whether or not Washington, D.C. becomes the 51st state. That's one way to pack the ballot box, isn't it? It is. <laughs> that's one way to do it. It's not the way I would have done it, but. <laughs> well, people can find you over at heritage.org. You're doing a marvelous job over there. And I want to thank Tom again for sending over wonderful people like yourself. We welcome you to come back on the show anytime. Just tap Tom on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, I got all this coming up. I want to go back on that crazy lady show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll say, I'll say, Tom, you know, I want to go back on that lady show that thinks we're better looking than Kamala Harris. The borders are. <laughs> True story. True story. <laughs> well, All right. Well, you know, it was pleasure. a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate um, you liking the work, and I, I, um, I thank you for the camaraderie. No, and, and by the way, I haven't said this all day, but happy St. Patty's Day. <laughs> happy St. Patty's Day. You have a good one. Take you care. too. All right. Check out Hannah Davis over at heritage.org. We're down to our last two minutes on the show, and that's all we got for today on this. I do know we have some people already booked for next week. I know Mark Tapscott's going to be joining us. Um, I've got Kaysler who's joining us also. I've got to remember who that guy booked. <laughs> I can't keep track yeah. anymore. Uh, but we Kaysler, will be yeah. back here. Yeah, we'll be back here. Uh, okay, that's your friend, isn't it? Yeah. Another Chris, this one with a C. The day was with a K. All right. So we do need to get our country back under control, and it's important that we show up at the ballot box. It's important we contact our elected leaders. It's important we let them know we are watching what they are doing. And it's important for you to get involved, whether it's by letter, by writing an editorial, uh, by showing up in your congressman or or senator's office and making your statement known, you must get involved. All politics is local. It starts here and it trickles upward. But that's all we got for today. And uh, I think we're going to be bugging out of here in just a few seconds. Anything else for you, Curtis? Yeah, I got to find some uh, corned beef. (laughs) I want a Reuben today. (laughs) St. Patty's Day, right? <laughs> Some cabbage. It is St. Patty's Day. Well, I want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room here over at Blog Talk Radio. So some strangers I haven't seen in a while. Thank you and welcome back. Thank you for those that were up on Facebook and also in YouTube. And remind you, uh, you can also go on our homepage, southern-sense.com, and join us there. So until then, I wish you all good night and God bless and a very, very happy and safe St. Patty's Day. I'm signing out.